We are New York. Bernie and Sid in the morning. Hot Radio 77. WBC. S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. You realize that's Leslie West? Originally from Forest Hills, although he had a Jewish name and he truncated it. Felix Papagliardi and Corky Lang on the drums. This was the first heavy metal band. And it appeared in the Fillmore East. I can remember it back in the 60s for all of you baby boomers. And then naturally in the summer of 69 on the stage in Bethel, New York, right next to Woodstock, as a half a million strong made that pilgrimage for three days of peace, love and happiness, frolicking, fornicating, copulating and rolling around in the mud. What a way to start this morning as yours truly, Curtis Sliwa, is substituting Right now, as I await the arrival of Congressman Peter King, for the dynamic duel, Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg. And actually, both of them are involved in situations that I've been involved in this particular week. Bernard McGurk, as you know, was diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer. That's exactly what I had in the year 2012. And I understand the ordeal that he's going through in his recovery, getting the chemo. At times, he feels like he's on top of the world. He's strong. He's fit. As you know, Bernard McGurk could get into the ring right now, coming right out of the projects of the South Bronx, the Monroe Projects, across from the Sotomayor Projects. Many of you right now are listening as you go back and forth on the Bruckner Expressway. But, boy, it can knock the living daylights out of you, as it did for me over a year. So we wish the best for Bernard. He's taking the time necessary to make sure that he can properly recover. And so that this prostate cancer does not metastasize either to another organ or to bone. And even then, modern medical science has remedies for that. And he has certainly found his path to be able to stabilize this cancer, which has killed so many men. I can only tell you from my own experience that the macho maniacal guys like Bernie McGurk, myself and others, it's a conversation we never want to have. Oftentimes it has to be forced on us because there's certain physical symptoms that we begin to suffer that without any, any doubt lead you into the direction that you're having a problem with your prostate. And then you go through a series of tests. But right now, 
I know there are a lot of guys listening out there. They've had some problems. They were probably listening to Frank Morano on the other side of midnight, going back and forth, schlepping uh, to the Porcelain Palace because that's one of the symptoms, constantly going back and forth, is that it's a simple blood test. Just get the blood test. They prick your finger. All of these misnomers, all of these urban myths about what happens when all of a sudden you go to a proctologist or your primary doctor or physician or somebody else who's involved in the diagnosis to determine whether you have prostate cancer or not, have no fear. Get the test. And don't wait until you're 55 or older. That used to be the old norm. There are now men in their 40s who have been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Clearly, if there is a history of prostate cancer in your male lineage, more so than anybody else, you've got to get tested. You've got to stay on top of it because you can get out of control very quickly. And then uh, it could hit you rapidly, not as quick as lung cancer or colon cancer, but it can se- certainly uh, take you. Uh, into the uh, Grim Reaper land. And there's no need for that. And women, I know many of you are listening right now. Your men, they don't want to have a conversation like this. Women, they're very out and about talking about breast cancer, all the potential remedies. Uh, They'll have actual conferences in which women will get together. I've seen women sit around the dining room table and discuss prostate cancer. Never guys. When I bring up this subject, it's almost like uh, no mas, no mas, we'd rather not discuss it. you got to discuss it. So many women's lives have been saved because preemptively they've gone for a breast cancer test and then they've found different remedies for their particular strain. And if you notice, uh, on a Sunday afternoon in the middle of football season, you'll see these huge mastodons running around dressed all in uh, pink. Or during the Major League Baseball season, they'll be wearing pink on an occasion to promote breast cancer awareness. What's done for prostate cancer awareness? Almost nothing. And it's not because people don't want to promote uh, the remedy or at least to get the test, a simple blood test, a prick of the finger. But that it is a subject that a lot of men do not want to discuss, do not want to bring up. So it is incumbent upon family members oftentimes to confront uh, the man in your family. And to make sure that he gets that prostate uh, test, prostate cancer test. So Bernie is on the right path. He has the right remedies. Uh, it's uh, it's like taking a roller coaster ride. I got to tell you, for that year from 2012 to 2013, uh, there were days I could barely open up my eyes. The energy was just completely drained. And other days, other days I felt totally revived. So we wish the best for Bernard McGurk in terms of his recovery. And no that there'll be times that he's on the air and other times that he just can't be on the air. And I totally understand that because I can identify with that. Meantime, the other part of the dynamic duo, which has become such a popular morning show in our tri-state area, I can remember uh, so long ago when they were discussing options and I was constantly promoting uh, at our uh, station when Cumulus owned it. No, no, no. You, you got to put uh, Bernie and Sid. Bernie and Sid. It's a great team. And there was a lot of resistance at that time. And thankfully, our general manager, Chad Lopez, realized that these guys had real talent. They uh, they had a, a synergy. 
that you don't often find in teams. And let's face it, if there's one thing I'm known for, Curtis Lee, is I've had more radio partners in my life than ex-wives. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely uh, <laughs> well aware of the chemistry and the synergy that's needed for great teamwork. And that's what Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg have developed over the years when they were part of the Imus in the morning show, when then they did the mid-morning show. And, boy, that was a battle to have them uh, here instead of Mike Lupica, who uh, management and Cumulus wanted. Thankfully, Chad Lopez uh, did an intervention and gave Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg uh, the chance that they had earned. And now in New York City, everybody talks about uh, Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg in the morning. Now, this is a day that normally they'd be interviewing Bo Deedle Tuesdays. But both Bo, who has many, many cameo appearances and lots of movies uh, as part of his resume, especially mob movies. Well, joining him is Sid Rosenberg. He's had a few cameo appearances of late. But this is a biggie. Gemini Lounge. Let me tell you something. I I should have been a consultant on this film because Gemini Lounge uh, is about the guys that I grew up with in the Canarsie section of Brooklyn. And it's like we've gone full circle because yesterday, we'll talk about it later on in the program when uh, Congressman Peter King joins us. Uh, the mayor of the city of New York was talking about how he's sending uh, his uh, undercover plainclothes units into different precincts, although they're not undercover and they're not playing clothes. And one of those precincts was the 69th precinct, which covered all of Canarsie, Brooklyn, which at that time when I was growing up was mob central for the Lucchese's and the Gambinos, but didn't have the kind of random crime that has driven up the stats there to make it one of the most crime-ridden precincts in all of New York City. We'll discuss that later on. But discussing the Gemini Lounge, it's so interesting that Sid Rosenberg, who grew up in Midwood, just a ways away from Canarsie, wanted to grow up and be an Italian. Like so many Jewish guys, uh, they wanted to be an Italian guy. They wanted to be a wise guy. And I said to Sid Rosenberg when he was uh, auditioning for the part on Gemini, Gemini Lounge that he is uh, actually filming with Bo Dito and others uh, in Los Angeles this week, that, hey, the perfect part for you would have been Harvey Chris Rosenberg, a Jewish guy. I remember him at 13 selling marijuana, little punk kid. But he was the first member of Roy DeMeo's crew. We've just been joined by Congressman Peter King coming in from Long Island. And let me tell you, later on, we're going to be talking about the front page here. This is yeah. your subject, MS-13. Yeah, MS-13. Hey, they are some brutal, rotten people. And uh, thank God we got it. Done, but again, you have to keep them down because they're there. They're, they're suppressed, but they can erupt at any time. Great to be with you, Curtis. Uh, again, I know you explained that Bernie's at uh, Sloan Kettering today. I spoke with him yesterday. He's a fighter. Yep. Talking to him, he's in good spirits. He feels good. Hopefully, he'll get a good report today and he'll be back stronger than ever. Well, Sid Rosenberg, though, is playing the part of an Italian guy in Gemini Lounge and not the key guy, Harvey Chris Rosenberg who was the wannabe son of Roy DeMeo, who was the head of this killing crew. Yeah, I think Sid's going through a whole trauma. He's Jewish, but he wants to be Italian. He's a successful uh, media guy, but he wants to be a gangster. I, I, I can't that, think of this guy. But that, was, that was the kid I knew, yeah. Harvey Chris Rosenberg, yeah. 13. He's selling marijuana outside of the schools. I had a few run-ins with him because he was a wannabe wise guy. You know, I said, why don't you become a booker boy? You know, go to shul, go to synagogue. <laughs> 
Like the rest of the Jewish kids in Canarsie were very bright. They were an Arist, uh, you know, they, they excelled. But there were a few of the guys, just like a few Irish, like uh, from, from your tribe, who always wanted to be like the Italian gangsters. But this was a guy who had a track record. I'm telling you, when all was said and done, Peter King, when eventually he was killed, they attributed close to 100 murders to wow. him alone. Now, he's only five foot five, not a very imposing figure. And apparently when they would lure you in the Gemini Lounge because you were doing business with them, mm-hmm. the Gambinos and the Lucchese's, uh, he would strip down to his underwear, and that's when you should have realized you got double trouble. Because they would take you, they would Khashoggi you. They would do a Khashoggi, like what's done to Khashoggi mm-hmm. by the Saudis. Right. And then they would take your body parts, put it in plastic bags, and take it out to the Fountain Avenue dump, which I grew up next to. I mean, there are dozens of people that they were responsible for removing from this earth. But Chris <laughs> Rosenberg, just like Sid, you know, you see how dapper right. Sid is? Oh, my God, are you kidding you Mr. America, GQ, the right. whole bit. Yeah. Harvey, Chris Rosenberg was the best-dressed mobster. So that's why he would take his clothes off first before <laughs> he would do what they called the Gemini method, which was not only to kill, but to butcher and dispose. So he's out there, and I have a feeling. You know Sid. He likes the cameras. He's lens lights. He's got the look. He's got the walk. He's got the talk. He knew all of these guys. In fact, to tell you what a bad guy that Harvey Chris Rosenberg was in order to impress the Italians who I grew up with, what they call the Gemini twins, Anthony Centaur and Joey Testa, I taught them how to play stickball. He stole a snowplow from the Department of Sanitation with the sanitation truck. Can you imagine? It's 16. He steals a sanitation truck with the snowplow, brings it to the chop shop. Roy DeMeo said, what are we going to do with this? What are we going to chop this up for? He goes, you never know. The snowplow, you never know. (laughs) Anything he could do to try to earn credibility. Although, remember, according to the lore, you had to be an Italian in order to be right. a made man in organized crime. The you know, Gemini Lounge, I was talking to a guy last week, he's a retired cop, I knew him you know, 40, 50 years ago, and he said the Gemini Lounge is really a good place to go to, apart from all the stuff you're talking yes, about. Yes. It was a nice place. He said, you know, people hung out there. They, uh, yeah, well, right on Flatlands yeah. Avenue Flatlands in Avenue, Troy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so really not Canarsie, uh, but next to Canarsie. But I got to tell you, uh, those guys tried to bring me there one time when I was going to visit my mother, Francesca, right. and 89th and Jay and Canarsie, and they pulled up in a Fleetwood Cadillac because they were best known for hot-wiring Fleetwoods and Eldorados, chopping them up, uh, and then obviously they get a lot of money for it. They say, hey, Curtis, uh, what, what, are you, what are you doing? How are those guys now, by the way? Oh, Triple Life Without Parole. Anthony Centaur, Allen Wood. Uh, Joey Testa, Allen Wood, Triple Life Without Parole in Pennsylvania. And occasionally I get letters from some of the others who say, Curtis, remember me? You think you could write a nice letter to the parole board? <laughs> and I, I basically say, you can all drop dead. Are you kidding? The battles that I had with these guys growing up in Canarsie. How about the mob now in Brooklyn? How are they? No. Nothing like it. Yeah. And uh, obviously with the app now that you have to be right. able to gamble in New York State, right. you don't have to get on your uh, Schwinn bicycle and cross the George Washington Bridge and uh, gamble there. Uh, it's taken a lot of the proceeds from their wire rooms because mm-hmm. that's where, right. where they were making their money. Uh, and they would give you credit. You see, obviously with the apps, you don't get credit. 
but the mob will give you a lot of credit, and then when all of a sudden you eat up the credit, you know what happens, Peter King. They send the jadrules, the knuckle-draggers, to bend your leg and stuff it in your pocket. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, we're substituting today for Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg. It's Congressman Peter King. Yours truly, Curtis Lee. And when we come back, we'll tell you something that we have in common, even though he's the Long Island kid and I'm the Canarsie boy. Just imagine, what do you think that Congressman Peter King and Curtis Lee will have in common right here in the morning show, WABC? You see, Congressman Peter King, this is the new cool in the gang versus the old cool in the gang. And I like both. That was out of our generation, the baby boomer generation. The baby boomer's right, my God. This was happy music. This was get up and dance music. And how many times, Peter King, you would go to a gathering and all the guys would be sitting, the women would get up, they're dancing with each other. And if you knew how to dance, wow. You were dancing with all the girls, and then finally the guys caught on to you. Feet don't fail me now. It's time to run out of the club before they give me a beatdown. But You're right about that, yeah. Peter King, we've described that I grew up amongst the Italian mobsters in, Can- in Canarsie. But I have a feeling you grew up probably amongst a lot of Irish civil servants, cops, firefighters, or, or would I be wrong about that? No, I grew up in uh, uh, Sunnyside, Queens. In fact, my father was a cop. He was on the job for over 30 years. I lived on 44th Street uh, next to the apartment house. Two, two buildings down was the uh, Celtic Cafe. Down the uh, other end of the street was uh, Queen of Angels Church. Up the block was Lynch's funeral home. It was one of those like, classic. I understand. I didn't know him then. He's a few years older than me. But James Kahn lived around the corner on 43rd Street. And uh, I guess off, off 43rd Avenue down by the park there. But I hear him on television. You know, somebody said, I can make it sound like this tough blue-collar area. And it, I guess it was to an extent. But nobody bothered anyone. There was maybe one or two gangs. They bothered each other, but nobody else. It was really a safe neighborhood. Now, now who lived a few blocks away? James Kahn, the actor. You, you know what we have in common, me and Jimmy Kahn? Tell me. Both born March 26th, Aries. Okay, there you go. And maybe we'll get into it later. When I was at AM 970, the answer doing the morning, and Frank Morano was my producer. Right, Frankie Five Burrows. We got a call. Hey, unless Curtis Lee amends what he said about James Kahn, we're going to sue him for every nickel, dime, and penny. <laughs> they had me read a retraction. Because, you know, management there, sale oh, uh, okay, yeah. The retraction that they wrote was worse than what I originally said. Yeah, I don't know James Kahn. I never met him. But I hear him on television. He talks about this neighborhood he grew up in. He makes it sound like it was uh, people getting shot left and right. It was a whole... And it's exaggeration. You can always take isolated instances. And the guy, it was not the Gemini Lounge. Having said that, uh, I mean, a friend of mine, his brother went to the electric chair. Another guy in the neighborhood went to the chair. And nobody gave us therapy. Nobody uh, oh, asked oh, us so how we little, felt about Jimmy it. Jimmy the angels with dirty faces. Yeah. So it was, uh, but again, it was safe in the sense that if you weren't involved with a, there's a small group of guys, if you weren't involved with them, nobody bothered you. It was, I mean, streets were safe. I never... Nobody worried about locking the car. You didn't have to worry about anything like that. And uh, it was good. I mean, I'm not trying to glorify it, but it was, uh, uh, you, know, you know, you work your way up, you work through. And uh, we had, like, in classrooms, Saint, I went to St. Teresa's. We had, let's see, we, uh, we went and called them shifts and sessions. One month it was 8 to 12. The next month it was 12 to 4. It was down, uh, school was overcrowded. They were down in the basement of the church and everything. But we had 72 kids in the classroom. 
Yeah, mean, two yeah. kids. And in fact, yeah. I went to St. Matthew's in Crown Heights, even though I was living in Canarsie, because mm-hmm. my father said, you're not going to Our Lady of Miracles, Holy Family of St. Jude's with your Supreme Cousines. I'm getting you out of here. You're getting on the B-17 bus going up to Crown Heights. The Josephite nuns, the Irish nuns. Yeah. In fact, they have their retirement home in Brentwood, in your district. Yeah, right. I visited a few of them uh, from years ago. And I go there first grade, and Sister Ruth says, first time history, St. Brendan the Navigator discovered the New right. World. I said. Sounds like a true Irish nun, right? Right. Sister Ruth, I go home to Canarsie and tell my cousins, my Supreme Cuisine cousins, that it's not Christopher Columbus. I'm going to pay a price. She goes, well, you do that, you're going to fail the test. You have to write St. Brendan the Navigator. In the history book, it actually, the first chapter was devoted to St. Brendan the Navigator discovering the new world. Yeah, you found out the truth, the Irish truth, the Irish same civilization. Uh, no, you know, you know, those neighborhoods are good. And uh, I, I guess what I look back on at the time, you know, when you, uh, you're growing up, it is what it is. But uh, that nobody felt sorry for anyone. Nobody said, you feel bad today? Do you feel good today? Uh, you know, what do you want for dinner? What do you want for lunch? You just shut up. You, you, you ate you what know, they gave you. You know what I remember from our generation, Peter King? You'd have a good neighbor who was a little down on their luck. Maybe there was a strike. Maybe there were layoffs. Mm-hmm. Everybody had a rent party in the street because you wanted to keep that neighbor because you never knew who might replace well, that true, neighbor. True. <laughs> so everybody would put like $5 in a hat, you know, pay the family's rent. They were so grateful. But you were able to preserve the block, particularly if they had been good neighbors. Because remember, everyone was on the block. Yeah. The elderly, they were staring out of the tenements or staring out of their homes. Everybody took care of one another. And I can remember those rent parties and people were like crying. They were so grateful that their neighbors would actually pitch in money. And, you know, back then, it's not like it is now. Uh, $5 was a lot of money. And I remember my father, a merchant seaman, saying, no, that's good neighbors. Well, if you put a 10 in there, my mother said, oh, my don't I? Don't worry. They're good neighbors. We, we don't know who might replace them. It's worth the investment. And it was great. And yet you and I, we had something in common. Uh, I ended up going to. Almost. Almost, that's right. <laughs> but I went to parochial school. Then I got transferred to Catholic, uh, excuse me, to public school in Canarsie because the mother superior of the Josephite nun said, you know, you have 40 kids in a class. Curtis is like, he's doing really good, but he's stifled. You send him to the public school, they have advanced classes. Wow. I walked into that advanced class in PS114. They were getting the New York Times delivered. Remember the Times, they yes. give you free yeah. copies. Uh, my current events before that was the weekly reader. You know, no yep. $5 words, big pictures. These are predominantly Jewish kids. They blew me out of the water academically, but it was great for me because I had to get my rear in gear. And so eventually I had met a guy named John Sexton, who became the chancellor oh, yeah. of NYU, yep. who finagled me into Brooklyn Prep, the very Jesuit high school that you went to at Crown Heights. Yeah, I, I went to it. The difference is I made it the uh, the whole four years, and you made it. 3.9 years, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and what college did you go on to? I went to St. Francis College in Brooklyn. Then I went to law school at Notre Dame. Uh, again, St. Francis was a uh, local school. was a great school. And then, uh, in fact, when I graduated from there, I went to Notre Dame. And I, I had worked almost full-time when I was in college. I worked at the Railway Express loading and unloading freight cars and trucks over in the West Side, West Side Terminal. And somehow, it, it's interesting. Now they have all these counselors telling you what to do. Uh, I applied to law school. It was $10 for each application. You could send in five applications, but Notre Dame didn't charge. 
So I feel that I'll, I'll apply. Who knows if, if by some luck I make it, I can always carry the letter around in my wallet saying I made Notre Dame. Well, I made it. I was accepted. And uh, my father went. We sat down, and I ended up going there. But going out there, I figured, my God, here I am coming from a small college from Brooklyn. I'm going to be at Notre Dame. I'm going to be overwhelmed by all these people. The education I got here in New York was as good as any of these guys from Ivy League schools, Stanford, all these places. Now, I want to talk about when you were busting your shoes at that cargo terminal container port on the uh, west side. Yeah, 33rd. It's now the Hudson Yards. Oh. So uh, was Jimmy Coogan uh, getting a little payoff for the uh, Westies (laughs) there? (laughs) Then eventually Mickey Featherstone and that crew? You heard about those guys. Oh, yeah. yeah, They they controlled that area. Yeah. In fact, this this one was on the 33rd from... Let's see, 33rd down to 29th, and then from the from 10th Avenue out uh, out to the Hudson. And uh, it was, uh, again, they didn't bother us, but it was uh, definitely, now, that, that was definitely right around Hell's Kitchen. They were they were tough neighborhoods, now, tough yeah, guys. I'll never forget talking with the great actor no longer with us, Danny Aiello. Oh, Danny was a great friend of mine, great, great guy. Danny had the same job, except he said, Curtis, I was able to wear patent leather <laughs> shoes. I said, what do you mean patent leather shoes? You wore patent leather shoes. You had a no-show job. You just sat there because uh, the mob hooked you up. You basically got paid <laughs> to watch guys like Peter King load and unload. <laughs> Imagine wearing patent leather shoes. And that allowed him the freedom to go for method acting lessons and then become the big star that he became. Anyway, we're going to continue on. Congressman Peter King in the house today as uh, I and Peter substitute for Bernard McGurk, Sid Rosenberg. And up next... We're close to an anniversary that is so dear to Congressman Peter King because it shows you no matter how bad a situation is, peace can take place. How shameful and disgusting is this rhetoric coming from the president of Russia? And to me, I think this is a sign of a guy who is worried about the impact that Zelensky has had. Because you think about it, Zelensky this week was awesome, I thought. Because think about this moment, this pivotal moment. He is the most wanted man in the world by the Russians. And yet he's going out and meeting with wounded soldiers. He's meeting with different world leaders who are coming into the war zone to meet him. And he's getting the world stage and people are applauding him and embracing him as I think they should. And then you've got Putin saying, okay, let's create this great photo op. I need some airtime. This is Sid on Sports. Sponsored by Fearless Boilers on 77 WABC. Not Sid, but Justin Ellick here with your bottom of the hour sports update. Let's begin with the lone local game last night with the 38 and 34 Nets welcoming in, excuse me, the 45 and 27 Utah Jazz. Kevin Durant was the star in this one going for a ridiculous 37 points in his only 38 minutes on the floor. That'd really be all Brooklyn would need along with some tight defense as they rode KD all the way to the bank to cash in on a 114 to 106 home win. Up next for the Nets is a trip to Memphis to battle the Grizzlies tomorrow night. Looking ahead to 10 Tonight, the Knickerbockers are set to tip it off with the Atlanta Hawks at the Garden. That action is scheduled for a 7.30 p.m. Eastern time start. Ice hockey to look forward to tonight as well as the Rangers are in Newark to face off with the Devils at 7 p.m. And the Islanders will get going about a half an hour later at home against the Ottawa Senators. Speaking of the Rangers, they squeezed in three trades yesterday just before the 3 p.m. Eastern time deadline. Forward Andrew Cobb comes over from the Winnipeg Jets in exchange for two conditional second-round picks and a 2023 fifth-round pick. Now former Vancouver Canuck Tyler Mott is in blue now as well with Vancouver getting a 2023 fourth round pick 
from the Rangers in return. And finally, an agreement amongst rivals as the Rangers sent a 2023 third-round draft pick to the Philadelphia Flyers in exchange for defenseman Justin Braun. Clearly, the hockey blue shirts are loading up here for a deep playoff push. We'll see how it shakes out for him down the road. Quick update out of the NFL NFL offseason as well as after 14 seasons under center for the Atlanta Falcons. Matt Ryan is on his way to Indianapolis after Atlanta traded the veteran quarterback to the Colts in exchange for a 2022 third-round draft pick. The Falcons moved quickly to add Ryan's possible successor in Marcus Mariota, agreeing to a two-year contract with quarterback shortly after the trade. Here with your bottom-of-the-hour sports update, I'm Justin Ellick on 77 WABC. Wait a second. Who are you playing this in honor of? Uh, Congressman Peter King, the scandalizer, or yours truly, Curtis Sliwa? I think that fits me more than it does Congressman Peter King. But uh, as we're substituting today for Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg, we had one thing in common, Peter King and myself, and that is we went to the same high school, different years. Uh, Brooklyn, I'm older, yeah. Right, Brooklyn Prep, great Jesuit high school. Uh, Later on, we're going to talk about the lack of free speech on campuses across America. I remember when I went and you went, the Jesuits, whether they were priests, brothers, or lay teachers, would allow free speech in the classroom, but you had better come prepared to back up what you had to say. You couldn't just pontificate or get up, because Mr. French would say to me, one of the brothers, Mr. Sliwa, you're on your bully pulpit? Where are your facts? I don't want to hear rhetoric. I want to hear facts. Yeah, you had to have logic, you had to have facts, and you had to be able to back it up. And uh, you're, you're right, there was no room for pontificating. Uh, you could say what you wanted to so long as you thought you could back it up. And more often than not, they could tear you down, and it was hard for you to back it up. But no, that was, it was a great uh, education. And listen, I'm not trying to glorify everything in the past, but to me the best thing about a school like Brooklyn Prep is that it was tough, but not tough in the physical sense. It was just Tough mentally in that you had to get something done. You had a, we had Latin tests every Thursday, math tests every Wednesday and all that, and you had to get it done. And you could go, co- come in and say, my house burned down, my parents were shot, the dog is dead. Okay, that's good. Where's your homework? I, I mean, tried all that. Yeah. I tried all that, <laughs> including and, that my mother had died. I tried that one time when I missed a, a test, <laughs> and I was doing detention after school. Remember, you'd have detention after school. They give you a piece of paper. You had to put JMJ at the top. Jesus, Mary, Joseph. You had to put uh, you had to put a line on the side there, and then they would tell you what to write. You couldn't look at anybody. You couldn't talk. There'd be a Jesuit in front of you or a brother, and I mean, if you even blinked an eye or did something in detention, what they call jug justice under God. You would have weekend detention, sometimes perpetual detention. <laughs> Wow. And and they would always tell you there's always consequences for your actions. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I don't think I've ever been late for a meeting since I got out of high school. There's absolutely no excuses. That's one thing. And, you know, no excuses. No one's going to feel sorry for you. There was no one to give you psychological guidance. Basically, you know, life is tough. We're going to teach you here how to get through it. And uh, it was really a very, very important part of my life as far as getting things done. And, of course, you face the consequences, not for uh, academic reasons, but you led a student revolt, as I understood. Yes. Remember, uh, we grew up in the era, the 60s, remember? Coming out of the bucolic 1950s, it was like leave it to beaver, father knows best, little house on the prairie. Then the 60s, peace, love, happiness. 
I was taught, don't trust anybody over 30. We had the Berrigan brothers, who were the peace advocates, coming and lecturing at Brooklyn Prep because they were Jesuits. They allowed for all that. They allowed for free uh, uh, flow of discussion. And I was elected student government president in my senior year against their wishes. The administration did not want me as a student government president. I wonder why, Peter King. But they allowed for Well, they were smart. They were very smart and they were very perceptive and they knew uh, there was trouble. Right. But they allowed for a fair election. And I remember I beat the kid, Anthony Messina, who was the star football player. I had played football with him. He was 10 times better than me. But we took a plebiscite not to wear jackets and ties. And as Father Alexander, who was the prefect, uh, who was the uh, uh, headmaster and the prefect of discipline, looked at me and said, what do you think your mom and dad worked so hard for? One of it is the tradition of wearing the jacket and tie. You just got a few months. You're going to graduate. It looks like Brooklyn Prep is going to close. It was 1972 because the Jesuits were going to keep Regis open for the Brainiacs, the Dr. Fauci's of the world, Fordham Prep, and Xavier. Uh, where and Jeff also Scalia Loyola, because all the rich families right, lived up there. Right, yeah. but they were going to close Brooklyn Prep. So they said, just let it go. I pushed it. I said, no, we took the vote. We voted not to wear jackets and ties. I thought all the young men would walk out with me in solidarity, <laughs> just like it was in the streets. Well, guess what? When I pushed it, they said, you're going to be on the outside looking in. I got expelled. The prefect of discipline, who never liked me to begin with, took me to my locker, said, you got five minutes to clean out your locker, and don't let the door hit you on the way out. I figured all the guys would walk out in solidarity. They looked at me, Congressman Peter King, like I was a leper in a leper colony. Only heard from one of them, a guy named Ferramosca, because, you know, there were no cell phones, and he called me in my house. Are you okay? Are you okay? <laughs> the rest of them, it's like I didn't exist. I was a person of no consequence. But the Jesuits told me there are consequences right. for your actions. Yeah, it was, uh, again, uh, not not perfect, but uh, compared to what today where kids have nervous breakdowns if they don't get their hair cut the right way or if there's a <laughs> wrong pair of shoes on. I mean, then it was, uh, you know, you figure you're lucky you're alive. And, uh, and again, it was not, not perfect, but it was a great, great experience for life. And uh, listen, I think you know, the fact that we're doing what we're doing, a lot of it is because of that solid grounding. We, we, we got there. And... Uh, you see, you came, you were in Brooklyn Prep a little bit after me because I was there in the late 50s, early 60s. So uh, we didn't have the Berrigan brothers that tight. But it, there was, they always taught you to think in, independent, though. I mean, yes. they were they were giving you what they thought was solid doctrine. But it was, you, know, you could basically, as you said, say whatever you want as long as you could back it up. You, you went to the school when the sports teams were very good. I went to the school at the end of the line when the sports teams weren't very good. Well, I was there. We had John Dockery, who was an incredibly good athlete. He ended up playing for uh, the Super Bowl in the New York Jets in 1969. I think he made AAA in the Red Sox farm system. Also went into Harvard. I mean, he was like the... Uh, Superstar, and he was a year behind me. But uh, my senior year, Notre Dame won the league. Uh, I mean, Notre Dame, Brooklyn Prep won the league championship. They're undefeated, and I think the next year they were also un- uh, uh, undefeated. And John, John Dockery was a uh, a great, great ball player. Dick Riley was the coach then, and uh, it was just again a solid. Uh, George Paterno, Joe Paterno's brother, he was the assistant coach, and they had again solid, solid team. They used to play down at, at Brooklyn College. Before that, they used to play Ebbets Field. They used yes. to play the Thanksgiving game and Ebbets Field against St. John's Prep. And uh, But it was, again, tough tough school academically, good sports. And uh, then Curtis Lee comes along. He's thrown out of school. The school, <laughs> so, the school gets shut down, and it's all history. So, uh, the football team wasn't very good when I went. So there's an announcement. 
everyone is to assemble in the gymnasium. You knew that was double trouble. That was like an execution. On the stage, there are the four-star football players. These guys were really good. Father Alexander, who is the uh, uh, the capo di tutti in charge of the school, announces, I'm expelling all four of you. They were found to be in possession in the locker room when they played that Saturday, I forget which team, Black Beauties, which were like amphetamines, which were the rage back then. All four of these guys had legacy. Their fathers, their grandfathers. It didn't matter the Father Alexander who's no longer with us. He expelled them right there. Can you imagine the fear it put wow. into all of us? Then on another occasion, he's out on the ledge, second floor. It's the sophomores. He's on the ledge by the boys' bathroom because some of the guys who were part of the yearbook, you know, they, they were right. part of the yearbook club, they were smoking marijuana in the bathroom. And he's on the ledge, and he's smelling it, and he jumps in like he's Batman, and he drags him down to the gymnasium, summons all of us, boom, expelled right on the spot. Man, you realize there were consequences for your actions. Yeah, these, these uh, uh, priests play different roles because I was there. Father, Father Alexander was the good guy. I think he ran the bookstore upstairs, and he was uh, always smiling. He was the guy you went to. Uh, you know, he'd always be friendly, and all, then he becomes the top guy. And he fit into that role. Later on, he was the head of the alumni. I remember going to a few dinners. He'd be there. And, uh, again, nicest guy in the world. But when they had to play the role, I assume Father Engel was gone by the time. No, he was that. gone. Yeah, he I, was. Uh, I forget uh, his replacement, the prefect of discipline, who was like the dean, you know, who was the, like a correctional officer. Right. He hated me. He loathed me and despised me. Actually, uh, Jack Alexander, uh, who was the headmaster, right. he, he gave me a second chance. He said, hey. That's it. You're like the only guy, only because of John Sexton am I giving you a second. And I blew that second chance, and the rest <laughs> is history. Anyway, it's uh, Congressman Peter King, yours truly, Curtis Lee, as we substitute for Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg. So much to discuss. In fact, the front page today in all the newspapers is the sweet spot for Congressman Peter King. It's about a trial involving MS-13, which had embedded itself out in his old congressional district in Brentwood in Central I slip exclusive here on WABC. So as Sid Rosenberg cuts his uh, and makes his bones on possibly becoming a future star to be on the uh, Hollywood Walk of Fame and be attending the Academy Awards maybe next year because it's right around the corner. For the movie that he's appearing in called The Gemini Lounge, a place that I knew well, most of the Gavones, the Jadrules, the Knuckle Draggers. So Flatlands Avenue, right? Flatlands and Troy yeah. Avenue, infamous. Uh, and then, of course, Bernard McGurk, who's still recovering from uh, prostate cancer. Uh, it's a subject, I'm telling you, uh, Peter King, I have seen grown men, strong, the moment I would mention it to him, having been a prostate cancer survivor, they didn't want to talk about it. They shrunk away in horror because they thought, oh, am I going to be a eunuch? Uh, uh, am I going to be able to function? I'd rather not find out if I had. I can't tell you how, especially in the black and Hispanic community, I'd rather not find out, Curtis. It's a simple blood test. You just prick your finger and then they can tell. Yeah. Again, my father died of prostate cancer. And, you know, for a lot of those reasons, he actually... Uh he was supposed to get a physical every year, and he was in a position where he filled it out himself. Everything was fine. He was never tested for anything, and he was a physical specimen, but he came down with prostate cancer when he was 60. He was in 
He'd been a cop for 30 years, and within five or six years, he had died. It's terrible. But on the other hand, it's so curable. You get it early, and now today, they even even if it has spread, they can still do a lot for you. So yes. Then it was unknown. It was like nobody ever spoke about it. It was like uh, uh, even you know, breast cancer had been sort of like that. Then you had uh, Betty Ford and uh, uh, Governor uh, uh, Nelson Rockefeller's wife, and it became more out. But prostate cancer was nobody wanted to speak about it. It was like uh, uh, like some kind of a curse or something. But again, it's men would just get the test. This is a hundred percent, ninety nine point nine percent curable. Speaking of former Governor Nelson Rock, former Rockefeller, former Vice President, one of the richest guys in the world. I heard you with John Katsimatidis on the roundtable discussion at five, talking about the shrinkage of items. And John brought up Oreos. You know, there's less <laughs> cream in the Oreos. Do you know that Nelson Rockefeller, one of the richest guys ever to live, could have been president? if not for a series of personal setbacks, which now would not have ended him. I mean, nothing at all today, God. He, every night, when he would be on the road, because he was traveling New York State, and he would stay in that, unlike Mario Cuomo, who would come right back to Albany, he would stay in that city. He would have delivered to him cookies and Dubonnet, the cheapest wine <laughs> out there. The richest guy in the world would have a bottle of Dubonnet. You could get it for like eight bucks back then. And Oreo cookies. He was addicted to Oreo cookies. I've heard stories like that. My addiction is to White Castle cheeseburgers. And I'm looking at, I think that now because of the uh, uh, economic situation, I'm convinced those hamburgers are smaller. Now, yes. they were small to begin with. And now, rather than stocked up at home, I stopped the place on Queens Boulevard on 43rd Street. I'd rather take that than the best steakhouses in New York. To me, there's nothing like a, a White Castle cheeseburger. Now, do you know who the driver for Nelson Rockefeller was, where I heard that story, who eventually became governor himself, George Pataki? Oh, really? Wow. Okay. That's, uh... Now, you mentioned about drivers. There's a guy who worked with my father. He was a former uh, boxer, Frank Morris, and he took a leave of absence from the cops to a uh, chauffeur uh, to drive and be a bodyguard for Nelson Rockefeller when he first ran for governor in 1958 into the campaign. The governor says, hey, Frank, if I can ever help you out, let me know. Make a long story short, he became the boxing commissioner of New York for the next 12 years. So Ro- Rockefeller, again, he was a rich guy, but he, he really knew street politics and he knew how to take care of guys. Well, when it comes to the streets, uh, in the next hour, we've got to touch on the uh, what was going to be an undercover anti-crime unit to replace what had been taken out of the budget by de Blasio and the city council. But it's been sort of re-geared. We'll discuss uh, Eric Adams' uh, attempt to drive down uh, the ever-growing violent crime in the city. I, I heard you and Bill O'Reilly going at it over the no-fly zone here on WABC. Well, we'll have to sort of tap into uh, what your opinion is now. And Zelensky, uh, who uh, is going basically before every parliament and every body of government in the world on Zoom and saying, we need your military aid, we need a no-fly zone, and we need those MiGs. Uh, that Poland was going to give us. You'll be able to comment on all of that and the story of the day on the New York Post, obviously. Well, yeah, also, if we can, not to keep going back to James Conn, I don't want to get you in legal trouble again, but I tell you, he's always on television talking about how tough Sunnyside was. That's what made him a tough guy. That's a story in the Post today about him. He's talking about growing up in the Bronx. I mean, where was he, the Bronx or Sunnyside, this guy? we got to get to this. Uh, you know what? I don't think I want to comment on that. I escaped getting sued once by I'm trying to bring Jimmy you back Conn. in. I'm trying to bring you back eight, in. He's going to be 82 or 83 yeah. on this Thursday when I'm going to be 68. 
I think I'll let you take the weight on this, Congressman Peter King, on the 50th anniversary of The Godfather that went nationwide on March 24th of 1972. Right here, Bernard McGurk, Sid Rosenberg. Who, believe it or not, Congressman Peter King, they're going back on tour. It probably is the Depends tour. Uh, rock and Rollers, they're out on tour in their 80s from our era back in the 60s and 70s. But the Who, one of the best of all time in this one. I mean, we're talking about revolution in the streets. It fit what we went through in the 60s, race riots. A million people would turn out for an anti-Vietnam War demonstration. People say things are bad now. They have no idea how raucous it was. They they were turbulent, dangerous times. I mean, it was really... uh, You're right, though. I mean, both sides also. Then you had the uh, pro-American people, the hard hats, been marching here in New York. And it was... uh, we came close to real, real civil division at that time, and there were riots. There were, but every summer there was at least two or three big cities had major riots. Major Absolutely. riots. Absolutely. Detroit, Newark, New York, L.A., Chicago. You go right down the line. Yeah. And the assassinations. Yeah. Remember, you had JFK first at the beginning of the sixties, then his brother, then Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. I mean, thank God we don't have that now. But imagine those three major figures assassinated, assassinated, and it just jarred our psyche. Yeah, and the ones with the game with Martin Luther King, he was uh, murdered in April, and then Bobby Kennedy was two months later in June. It was almost like, what's going to happen next? It was really, uh, no, they they were tough, tough times. It really were. And And we we made it through. And it's interesting because it was the Vietnam War era. People don't realize that our own government never called it a war called it a uh, a police action. Yeah, that started with Korea, I guess. Harry Truman. Uh, yeah, we really haven't had a war since. I mean, officially. We've never declared war. Right, but you know. It was, oh, yeah. It was, it, oh, no, my God, yeah. definition of a war, it was a war. It was. No, I'm just saying legally we never called it a war, whether it was Korea, whether it was uh, Vietnam. Even even Iraq was not a, you know, there's no declaration of war no, or anything. No. no, and so naturally when uh, Vladimir Putin against every prognostication, invaded Ukraine. Everyone was, ah, he's not going to invade Ukraine. Maybe take a little peace over there where they've been having that insurrection there in uh, the Donbass area, you know, the eastern Ukraine. Right. Maybe you just take a little chip of that, the Crimea. But full-scale invasion, and he will not refer to it as a war. He calls it a military action. Yeah, well, he's uh, – going back to uh, Crimea, we have been – 2014, Poroshenko, who was then the president of Ukraine, came to meet with us in Congress. I was on the Intelligence Committee. He was begging for ammunition, for some lethal weapons. And uh, his thing, I'm asking for bullets, and all President Obama will give me his blankets. And he, he told us, he said, this is going to come back to haunt all of us. He said, just give us the defensive weapons. We don't want troops. We don't want offense. Just give us defensive weapons. And uh, President Obama didn't want to give them anything. 
Again, he deeded them blankets, and that almost became a good joke. No bullets, but blankets. And uh, so he has shown up. There are consequences. Seven years later, eight years later, you know, seeing what's happening. Yeah, well, you've uh, heard it all. You've seen it all. You mentioned Poroshenko, the former president of Ukraine. And just as there is that statement, politics makes for strange bedfellows, war makes for strange bedfellows because Zelensky gets elected president. He and his supporters charge Poroshenko with treason. Poroshenko has to leave to Poland uh, to basically function in exile. But with Russia threatening to invade, he returns to Kiev. And now all of a sudden you see him doing interviews praising Zelensky, the very guy who was charging him with treason, which has been a cycle, unfortunately, in the Ukraine ever since they've had elections. One guy or one gal gets elected, the loser generally gets charged with treason, or there are major charges against them, which has really confused us. Uh, when you had all those Foreign Affairs Committee uh, meetings, when you would discuss the Ukraine or you would discuss Russia, what was it you were being told by our National Intelligence Agency, and what were the things that they just would not share with you? Yeah, uh, well, yeah. Two committees, Foreign Affairs Committee is, uh, you get more than the average person would get, but uh, as far as the intelligence, not too much more, unfortunately. I was on the Intelligence Committee. That's when uh, I got the, uh, the, as close to the real deal as you can. Mm. Uh, the the uh, Intelligence Committee was like three levels below ground. It was in these soundproofed, uh, totally secure rooms, and uh, you had people come in, and they would tell us uh much more, not all. I'm sure, you know, they, they said they were telling us everything, but we certainly heard a lot more than you would hear on the evening news, a lot more than the average congressman or senator would know. Uh, I would say, without giving things away, that with Putin, someone like Putin was considered to be uh, a murderer, uh, a vicious guy, but he was not suicidal. And uh, so I think they would be surprised that he's taking a risk like this, what he's doing. I mean, he, even assuming that he was that he ends up being quote-unquote successful, whatever that means, uh, was it worth it going through all of this? Uh, I think the Putin of 10 years ago would not have. Not that he was any better a person, but he would have looked at this more you know, more strategically, and he would have had much better insight. I mean, you should have seen that even whether it was Crimea or uh, eastern Ukraine, those people are fighters. And for him to think that he can go in and take over a country uh, larger than the state of Texas and be able to control it didn't add up. So... Uh, no, but those, those briefings were helpful. Uh, again, we always felt that you weren't getting the full story, which is a way I can understand. If I were the president, I wouldn't want these, you know, we had guys in that committee like Eric, Eric, Eric Swalwell. Now, if you were the president, would you want to give your top secrets to Eric Swalwell? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, so uh, there was that, but uh, it, it was uh, get a great experience of all the time I was in Congress. I say being on the Intelligence Committee was the, uh, uh, you know, the most informative, the most interesting and especially for me with Homeland Security, I was chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, plus I was on the Intelligence Committee, and you would find the number of plots that could be against New York. And you're in the position, you can't be announcing it, you cause a panic. And the other if you wait too long, you have people killed in the subway. So that was, uh, there were some tense moments there with that, I remember, especially on the, the 10th anniversary of Well, later on, I want to discuss, you know, John Miller, who was uh, on the roundtable discussion of John Katsimatidis yeah. last night at 5 with you. Uh, you were discussing just the state of affairs crime-wise in New York City. Uh, at the same time, there are members of the city council who are trying to oust him because he was giving testimony about the surveillance that the NYPD had to do in the aftermath of 9-11. 
and they're trying to hold him culpable for being prejudiced against Muslims, just like they did to you yeah. when you were uh, mm-hmm. part of the Homeland Security uh, Committee. Uh, and I'd like to make comparisons because right now John Miller is the only link between all these administrations right. in dealing with the terrorism, which is still our number one threat. Still yes, our number one yep. threat out there. It's out there. People don't realize that. Uh, in fact, what uh, the NYPD did under uh, Ray Kelly and before that Bill Bratton and then what uh, John Miller has done since he came back, he's been like the you know the rock there. And the system that the NYPD had set up under Kelly continued uh, with uh, Bratton and uh, John Miller because John Miller's had several runs out of here in New York. Also, he was with the FBI in Washington and, and the cops out in L.A. That was the most effective uh, counterterrorism system in the country. Uh, people came from all over the world to study it. And, uh, yes, of course there were more cops in the Muslim communities. When they were going after the Westies, they were going to every Irish gin mill on the West Side trying to find out who was who and who was doing what. When you were going after the mob, you went to the Italian neighborhoods. When you, you know, if you're going after the Ku Klux Klan, you don't go to Harlem. I mean, the fact is you go to the Muslim communities because what they're afraid of is, and they wanted to have sources, and they wanted people in those communities. If uh, we hear that some guy is coming from Morocco or some guy is coming from Saudi Arabia, you want to have a source in those communities here in New York. Go to a Saudi. Go to a uh, Moroccan. Go to some you know, from Yemen. What have you heard? Because we, had, I don't know how many threats and uh, attacks were stopped. I mean, Ray Kelly used to have the list of them, including the Brooklyn Bridge, the subway system. Uh, I remember being with Ray Kelly in 2009. We were at uh, Mike Bloomberg's house and uh, – uh, Ray was there, and I remember they had all the head guys were there. You had uh, uh, Salzberger was there, Zuckerman was there, Rupert Murdoch was there, and uh, uh, what? Uh, you know, the guy who was now the British Prime Minister, he was then the mayor of London. So he Boris was there. Johnson. Boris Johnson. Right. And so they were Ray Kelly, and Ray says, can I talk to you? We go out in the street. That's when I found out there was a possible attack against the New York City subway system the next day. The guy was coming from Colorado with liquid explosives. Yes. And uh, they were uh, tr- uh, trying to follow him, and they knew we had people here in New York. And uh, bottom line is they did stop him. But th- the real moral of the story to that for me was one person that they did go to, they asked an imam because uh, they knew he was the imam for this guy. And they said, can you tell us anyone else who was involved? And the guy swore them he was helping them. Turned out he tipped off. That imam tipped off the bad guys that the cops are looking for him. So if you have an imam who's supposedly being trusted and he's actually helping the bad guys, there's no doubt in the Muslim community there were people then who were either sympathetic or active collaborators, and as there are in any community. And to me, to say that that's anti-Muslim, that's why I, I, I did the, the hearings on Muslim extremism here in the country. I'm glad I did them. I stand by them. But I was attacked by almost every media source. Remember, I invited Keith Ellison as a courtesy. He wasn't even on the committee. I let him testify. He breaks down crying. The headlines are that I forced Keith Ellison to yes, cry. Yes. I mean, oh, my God. it was No, but that was – I give the NYPD credit. They set up the best counterterrorism, better than the FBI, better than Homeland Security, better than everyone. And they stopped attack after attack here in New York. And John Miller was a key part of that. He's great. I would stand by John Miller against anyone. Well, we have to. Because uh, it didn't receive the kind of attention it should have. But you know there's a radical element in the city council now. Yeah, at least radical. God. Democrats, Socialists of America, they all bow to their leader, AOC, all out crazy, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democratic Socialists of America, the Justice Warriors. They are trying to get John Miller out. 
And remember, with all the problems we have with crime in New York City, we'll talk about that uh, with Bo Deedle, uh with the uh, implementation of this my, new... My wife is texting me. You said the story in the... T- I haven't seen it yet. Page 12 of the Daily News. She said they're going after John Mellis. Yes. She also loves John Mellis. Yeah. He's a great, great... What a patriot he is. God. This guy could be making 20 times the amount of money in the private sector as he is by being and the remember, NYPD. Let, let's look at his history. Great reporter, John Miller. He had the first interview with Osama bin Laden, remember, in the caves of Afghanistan while the goats were outside, which gave us an idea of what this guy was planning. He used to shadow John Gotti Sr. Yeah. He was the first guy to tell me. Well, the Gotti shadowed you, too. Right, but he was the first (laughs) guy to tell me. Oh, it was the Gottis. It was the Gambinos uh, who tried to whack you. Uh, So here's a guy who has his fingers on the pulse, uh, was an associate of Bill Bratton, very close with Bill Bratton. In fact, went with him out to L.A. Right. when Bill Bratton became the police chief there, came back, and has headed our uh, anti-terrorism unit of the NYPD, had a 1,000 members. I hope to God they haven't been depleted. I can't get any information about it because, you know, they're losing police officers. Uh, but that, without that, we are vulnerable. And we can Absolutely. see that in the the, the uh, position that Israel has taken. When Zelensky spoke before the Knesset, and Zelensky was saying, give us the Iron Dome. Give us the most advanced, sophisticated, defensive missile system in the world, uh, developed by the United States in partnership with the Israelis. Uh, the Israelis said, no, because it might fall into the wrong hands. Secondarily, he says, don't you remember the Ukraine took care of Jews uh, 80 years ago, and he's the Jewish president of the Ukraine. Right, Zelensky is Jewish, right. Right, but members of the Knesset had to remind him, hey, there's 80,000 Ukrainians who volunteered for the SS. Many of them ran concentration camps. There's a, there's a, 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 a dual history of the Ukraine, and they haven't been in support of They haven't put an embargo on trade with Russia. They're friends with Vladimir Putin, and they have to be because all of their enemies – are also uh, confidants of Vladimir Putin. And as you see, Putin has a very good relationship with Israel. And let me go back to President Obama on that, because uh, Russia was not in the Middle East. Sadat threw them out in the 1970s. And then in 2014, I guess it was, whenever it was that uh, Obama laid down the uh, the red line. And uh, President Obama was all, all set to go to war on that. He was saying that uh, Syria, of course, they use chemical weapons. He had spoken to Jordan, spoken to other countries. Everyone was mobilized. And then the last minute, he pulled back. And not only did he pull back, he invited Russia in to be a, like a mediating force. That has to be, and that really has not gotten the criticism it deserved, to bring Russia back into the Middle East. They got thrown out by yes. the Arabs, and President Obama invites them back in. And obviously, they were not there to create peace. They were there to basically take the side of Syria. And they were, and give President Trump credit, he, he had... He killed a load of Russian soldiers in Syria. It was 300. Yeah. 300. People don't realize that. They were mercenaries. Right. The Americans were guarding the oil wells in Syria. The mercenaries attacked the American troops at the oil wells. The American commanders, uh, President Trump, gave them the opportunity to call the shots on the ground. Right. They they killed 300 top-flight Russian fighters. Vladimir Putin never complained. No, and that's never uh, complained. Again, Trump, whatever faults he had, uh, he did give defensive weapons to the Ukrainians. He did kill Russian soldiers in Syria. 
But uh, the fact that Russia is in the Middle East today and they're able to create this type of issue is I lay that right at the feet of Barack Obama and, of course, his accomplice Joe Biden. Well, when we come back, Congressman Peter King, we're going to get into the time machine as we see the prices at the pump skyrocket. I'm going to take you back to 1973 and 1979 when prices were skyrocketing at the pumps. And a lot of it had to do with Russia, had to do with the Middle East, had to do with Iran, and had to do with a nuclear power plant called Three Mile Island. Oh, there's so much to delve into this morning as Congressman Peter King and yours truly, Curtis Lewa, we substitute for Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg right here on WABC. Bill O'Reilly here, and I'm warming up from the NRIA.net studios in New York. Stand by for the O'Reilly Update Morning Edition. On this Tuesday, the world has had a very tough time lately with the one-two punch of COVID and Putin. These two events have changed everything on the planet quickly. Three years ago, no one could have predicted this. Now, COVID will eventually be defeated by medical science, and Putin will go down. We just don't know exactly how. But an unstable dictator with nukes cannot survive for long. Hopefully, the Russian people will realize that, rise up, and the Russian military will depose Putin. It's frustrating because no one knows how long that will take. But again, Vladimir Putin has put himself in a position where he can never rejoin the community on Earth. He's a war criminal. Just put yourself in the shoes of Ukrainians. Here you have your towns being blown up, Russian soldiers shooting civilians down, including women and children. And Ukraine, population 44 million, is fighting back, but Russia is much more powerful. This is all because of one man. Vladimir Putin. At least three million people have fled Ukraine. So let's all pray Putin gets it soon. That is the morning O'Reilly update. More analysis later on. So this song, which unfortunately was the number one song in 1973. Oh, You know, this would be uh, what Cousin Brucey would be spinning, stacks of wax on the old WABC. You remember that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, Cousin Brucey. Thank God John Caspertini's brought him back. He's a legend in New York. What a show. Six to ten on Saturdays. Then it's Tony Orlando, ten to twelve. And then I come on. 12 go. midnight to 6 in the morning. And then you get Joe Piscopo the next night. That's right. Two Great hours of uh, Joe yeah. Piscopo uh, from 6 to 8 to Ramsey, Subaru, Sinatra show. Really great stuff. Right. Entertaining. But we have decided we're partnering up on this. Yep, we are. Peter Absolutely. King, and we got to get John Katsimatidis involved because, uh, let's face it, he's got the juice. He's got the connections. Right. And this is serious. So the, you know, the listeners, we're, we're not fooling around. This is Serious. I'm very serious about this. We want to give a high five to your wife. Right, Rosemary. For tipping you off a full-page article in today's New York Daily News. Attacking John Miller, who was a New York hero. 
I read the original article, which was much smaller, about how he appeared at a city council hearing, which the police department has to do to discuss budgetary uh, operations and what they're doing. And they roasted him. They roasted him. They said he was anti-Muslim, anti-Arab. They claimed that he wouldn't answer questions, which, of course, you're running the anti-terrorism unit of the NYPD, which has kept us safe and secure since the attack of 9-11. And he is he is didn't matter which mayor. He's always been the person who has guided us through that and kept us safe and secure. And I see that our mayor, Eric Adams, did not stand with him, but is actually, well, give us an idea yeah, of what he said. Uh, Mayor Adams said, what we did was wrong, talking about the NYPD, which did such a great job of monitoring what was happening to prevent us from being attacked. He calls it spying. All of this is just nonsense. It's wrong. What they did was heroic. It was absolutely essential. It saved thousands of lives here in New York. John Miller is a hero. I will stand by him, whatever. And it's interesting, here in the Daily News, and this is obviously a setup because the story is today, uh, Mayor Adams is meeting with Muslim leaders later today, and they talk about the uh, American Islamic Relations Council, uh, which they said is a Muslim advocacy group. What, it, what CARE is, it was named as an unindicted co-conspirator in one of the largest terrorist cases in the history of the country. Bob Mueller, the head of the FBI, would refuse even meet with care or anything to do with them. And here they're called an advocacy group. If you have care against you, you know you're doing the right job. And this is where the media falls into this stuff, to be quoting groups like care by saying that John Miller, who was heroic, and the NYPD, which was heroic in tracking down these terrorists, making, finding out in advance what was going to happen, and to somehow accuse them. I mean, think back to 9-11, what it was like, and how many more 9-11s we would have had if we're not for people like Ray Kelly, Bill Bratton, John Miller, the job that they did. So I stand with John Miller all the way, and it's up to the people of New York who care to tell Mayor Adams to knock it off. Stand with John Miller. Don't give in to the mob. Don't give in to these radical leaders who somehow want to create these phony issues. We should thank God we have people like John Miller and tell these other people to knock it off and get lost. I stand with John Miller also, and you are so right, Congressman Peter King, today at 12 noon. Uh, Mayor Eric Adams is holding a roundtable meeting with Muslim community leaders. You know this will be the priority. This is definitely a setup. Council attacks John Miller on Friday. They want his job. The mayor, instead of taking the back of John Miller, gives an interview to the Daily News and says John Miller was wrong. You know the Muslim community leaders are now going to smell blood in the water, and they are going to want John Miller sacked which would devastate our anti-terrorism uh, unit. And let's make it clear, neither Curtis or I has spoken to John Miller about this. He has no idea we're saying what we're saying now. I'm saying it as a citizen, as a New Yorker, as an American, and people should flood City Hall with phone calls today. Yes. Stand with John Miller. Stand against the radicals. Well, I have a feeling there's going to be a threesome, and sometimes we disagree on different subjects. Mm-hmm. But coming up next, he's on every Tuesday, Bo Deedle knows John Miller as well as anybody. Yep. And can also comment on the mayor's anti-crime unit effort, which isn't plain clothes, isn't undercover. But the mayor is claiming that it's going to drive down this horrific escalation of gun violence in the streets of New York City. All of that here uh, with Bernard McGurk out, convalescing, Sid Rosenberg styling and profiling in Hollywood in the uh, Gemini Lounge movie. 
And that means Congressman Peter King and yours truly, Curtis Lee, was set to take you the rest of the way. Originally, where I spent my first five years, Congressman Peter King, after I was birthed in Brooklyn Hospital, 46 in Rockwell, where my father, Chester, on my Polish side of the family, (laughs) was from. And then my mother and my father said, that's it, we're Chi-Town, we're coming back to Brooklyn. You know the rest of the history. But on the line now, he's on every Tuesday uh, with Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg, Bo Dito and uh, Bo we're hoping that you join us in solidarity because uh, our very dear friend and a protector of New York City and America, John Miller, is under fire now. Well, first of all, uh, good morning. I'm down to Florida, coming back tomorrow. But uh, let me tell you, I've been following this thing, and John Miller is not just a friend. He's been close to me from the beginning when he was a reporter when I worked mm-hmm. up in East Harlem. And uh, he used to show up on the scene there as a homicide. Now, let's, let, I'm going to be very honest about one thing. Part of the election of Eric Adams, I asked for two things, directly to Eric Adams, directly to Phil Banks. The one thing I asked for, you've got to keep John Miller in place. I also asked about Esposito, Joe Esposito, keep him in place. I don't hide nothing. I tell it like it is, and if Eric was here, I would tell him right to his face that he has to stand by John Miller. People don't realize I was around, you were around, I'm a native of New York, and, and the congressman was around. When the World Trade Center first got blown up in, in 93, it was, and then they went after that guy who looked like Santa Claus over there in Newark, the guy that was part of the whole conspiracy. Yeah, the blind sheik, yeah. Yes, yes, he wore that Santa Claus hat. That I think he's living in uh, in Colorado right now, and in Max uh, prison right. over there. But a lot of these, uh, <clears throat> a lot of these uh, plots were destroyed, and then we all went through what happened when the planes crashed into the buildings. And just maybe if they had more intelligence and put the intelligence together with the FBI and the CIA instead of using this nonsense of don't tell the other intelligence group what's going on. Maybe we could have foiled that plot. And, uh, you know, we can't look back, but we got to look ahead. Now, John Miller was a person that uh, he was the one that was putting all these things together in New York with these plots, with the subways, because in reality, we could have had a lot more uh, uh, actions against New York City by these Muslim terrorists. And uh, John Miller's group there were able to get intelligence, and we were able to foil a lot of these plots. Now people are so upset. Hey, look, I don't get so upset if you want to, you know, they put intelligence and they put organized crime guys, Italians. Yeah, hey, Bo, when they went after the mafia, they went in the Italian neighborhoods. They were going after the Westies. They went in the Irish neighborhoods. I mean, it would make sense. And we knew that there was a, a lot of activity between ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Muslim organizations in this country. It may have been one-tenth of one percent. That's all you need to carry out a lethal attack against New York. I mean, the people of New York, and I've been going over this thing with city council over and over, and I do have a a report. I'm very happy that I do have a report with uh, Phil Banks and with the the, uh, mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. I was a supporter 
for 18 years, and I still am a supporter, and I'm, I'm praying. This is where you have to stand your ground. You can't curtail to these to the mob because these morons, including these moron city council members, uh, all they want to do is just destroy, destroy, destroy. The people of New York want to be safe. The people of New York want these guns off the street. The people of New York don't want to see bombs going off in New York City by terrorists. These are the people that the New York City Police Department has to protect. Oh, Bo, I want Eric Adams to succeed. But, you know, reading in the paper here today, he said, talking to John Miller, what we did was wrong. I mean, it was not wrong. It was right. It saved thousands of lives. And to me, to be undermining a guy like John Miller, listen, John Miller can walk away from the job tomorrow and make millions of dollars. I mean, that's, let's face it, without doing any really hard, hard work. So he doesn't need the job, but he does it for the city. And the mayor should not be undermining him that way. Absolutely, Peter. I'm one million percent. And again, John Miller is, is very comfortable in his life. He doesn't need the job. When I asked John, John, do you want to come back? I had this conversation with John. He goes, I love helping the people in New York City. That's why John Miller wanted the job back, and that's why he got the job back. And that's why I was the one that was out there uh, punching for him to get that job well, Keep punching, Bo. Keep punching. Well, let me tell you, now Now we're, we're talking about a crisis right now where you're going to listen to this city council member. Part of the thing with uh, uh, with Eric and also with Phil Banks, I told them I want to go into the city council, this old man here. And you can line up five guys, and I'll take five guys who are six foot one, two, with a headlock, and I'll take them, and nobody's going to die. I said, we have to give the police officers the tools that they can work with. A headlock is not a chokehold. Then they, they want to bring back this uh, diaphragm law. I said, this is ridiculous. Please, please let me be more. I don't want no job. I don't want no more. I don't need a badge. I want to be a concerned businessman in New York who has law enforcement background. Hey, there's a reason why I went through almost 15 years without killing anybody. And God knows I was hospitalized 30 times. There are ways of taking people down. But if you're going to take there, if you're going to take away the, the, the fact that you have to touch somebody when you arrest them, I mean, it, this is so ludicrous and ridiculous. Now, as far as with the anti-crime, you know, I understand. I'm just happy that we brought back the gun squad some way. Now, we had an incident, like I said uh, before, we started citywide anti-crime. We had two incidents. We had friendly fire because people didn't know the cops come out with a gun. The other cops shot at them and all that. Uh, this is okay as far as I'm concerned, but we have to utilize it. Now, I'm down in Florida now, and I, heard, I saw something yesterday a friend of mine bought. Right open at the gun show, they bought a gun with, a, I think it had an 18-round clip with cop killer bullets. And they're called cop killer bullets because they run right through the bulletproof vest. They're a little, a small caliber bullet with a with like a, this, this Teflon-type tip, and they go right through it. Why in God's name are we allowed to sell this in America? You ask me. Please, they know all the all the gun people are going to say, "Oh, Bo, you're a wussy." I am a wussy. There's no reason to sell guns with ammunition that could pierce a bulletproof vest. What are you going to go get Bambi? And you need that kind of firepower? They got clips down here. They got ammunition that you've never seen. Well, I'm a piercing ammunition. Why are we selling? Because that goes into the hands. And Bo, you know, going back thirty years, more than thirty years ago, Mario Biaggi was leading the fight against that in Congress. But somehow those, yeah. those bullets are still out there. 
And then no, not just those bullets. I'm talking about them buying AR-15s with banana right. clips down here in Florida. I mean, the cop killer bullets, yeah. And 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 it's so it's so ridiculous. And the cops don't need that kind of firepower even. So why are the criminals now? They bring them up to New York. Now here's the thing that I. I spoke to Eric, and I was waiting to get back. I've been in California filming all last week, and then I've had to fly down to uh, to, to Florida here in Palm Beach, down in Sarasota, and I'm coming back. Here's what I wanted to talk to him, and I'm going to have a meeting with him. Part of my thing is we have something very important. We have the ATF that works along with these federal organizations. We've done operations before. Here is my proposal, and I'll say it publicly. My proposal to the mayor to, and to Phil Banks and to the commissioner, uh, if we work together with ATF, if we get a gun collar, we use them in the federal court because what they do is they follow the gun back to where it was sold, whether it's Florida, Virginia, North Carolina. Then they get charged with the interstate flight, even though they don't have to prove that they brought that gun in the city. Then they're facing 10 to 15 years for a frigging gun. Let's take all the cards and put them on the table. If we want to stop gun violence, we have to have a person getting caught with a gun. We'll get 10 to 15 years. You want to see it stop real fast? It'll stop. And these creeps will be going to jail instead of these ridiculous DAs and this New York State uh, morons that we have running the city council, the state assembly, the state senate that don't care about these poor people getting shot. And you know who the victims are? The victims are our minority communities. And, and, and Curtis will tell you, you ask them, do they want more cops? Do they want more laws taking these guns off? They'd be the biggest supporters that we have. All right. Now, Bo Dito, in reference to this new unit uh, that Eric Adams has assigned to the streets, is assigning to the uh, high crime precincts, one of which uh, is the 69th precinct where I grew up in Canarsie, Brownsville. Uh, they have a uniform. They're clearly identifiable. You've been in the streets. I've been in the streets. Uh, they're clockers. They're steerers. They're lookouts. You can spot these guys like you can spot uh, 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 Abraham Lincoln on a $5 bill. That's It's not yeah. undercover. It's not It's not an anti-crime team. It's just another group of police officers with different uniform. Well, why, why I was happy about it is that they're, they're cracking down, doing something. You know, I, 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 at this point right now, with all the garbage that goes on, with all these libs and all these socialists and progressives, to have something happen. Part of the idea, I think, is they use the unmarked cars, and they should use various uh, cars that they voucher, unmarked cars, and then let them go out there. When they come out of the car to toss somebody, we call it tossing. I'm sorry. That's the words that we use. You're going out there to suspect someone has a gun. You have to have the camera on now, but at least you have on the back of their uh, uh, their windbreak or whatever it is, you have them readily identified. You, you know yourself, Curtis, uh, 70%, 75%, I think, of our police department are minority, black and Hispanic. And I don't want any kind of friendly fire of some young kid from Levittown who never got no fight. I'm sorry to say Levittown. Never got into a fight. All of a sudden sees a, a black guy or a Hispanic guy with a gun in his hand, and he takes it as a criminal, and then he shoots him. I'm always worried about friendly fire, and a lot of these cops today are not uh, 
uh, uh, uh, that well-trained to come against somebody with a gun because any time it happens, we're having all kinds of problems with cops shooting too fast sometimes. And now I don't want no mistake with my anti-crime guys or gun squad to be shot by other cops. To me, that's the worst thing that can happen is friendly fire. Do I take, do I want the old anti-crime back where I started? Yes, but I'll take it as it comes, and maybe uh, we'll start to see some real crime reduction. So I'm willing to take anything they give us right now, Curtis. And, I mean, if it means that they wear a break, windbreaker or whatever with them being identified, I'll take it. Let's do something. That's all I'm saying. And then lastly, uh, Bodito, uh, the mayor went out to Chicago uh, to meet with uh, Mayor Lightfoot there and police authorities. And they were talking about how difficult it is to hire cops now in both New York and Chicago. And they want to lower the standards to a high school degree or GED. And I don't think they quite understand, Bo, that it has nothing to do with the standards. It's that cops, young people don't want to be cops because the police officers of today have been rendered impotent. They're not permitted to actually go out there and be proactive and be the kind of police officers that some of these young men and women dreamed of being all their lives. And my father must be turning over in his grave. I mean, this is just incredible to see. Curtis and the congressman, we're all on the same page with this. We saw the progression against police. The police were on it after 9-11. Everybody loved the police, and then all of a sudden it reverted back after this this criminal. And again, what what happened to uh, our friend there, I don't really want to mention his name, uh, G.F., what happened to him, was was wrong, horrible, and, and I'm certainly non-supportive of what happened to him by the cops. But every cop in America, you have hundreds of millions of interactions, and the the, the small amount of incidents that are bad. But every cop is painted with a brush. No one has respect. I've made told a story about. Five cops, including a sergeant, I made an illegal left turn on 42nd and the 5th where my office is, and they pulled me over. Five cops, they said, hey, guys, why don't we get together, put some sweatshirts on, we'll go up to East Tom, we'll take some guns off the street. They looked at me sideways. The problem here is the cops are not doing their jobs because they don't want to lose their job, get arrested, and maybe get their house taken away that they've been paying a damn mortgage. This has to change. And the people of New York, if you want a safe city, we have to support the police, not the bad police, the good police, which 99% of them are good, hardworking cops. But if you're not going to support them and you're not going to give them the rules of the road, what you could do, what you can't do, hell, would you, Curtis, if you were my partner, would you get out of the radio car? If you know you just bought a house, you've been paying for it, you're going to lose your job, get arrested, and lose your home. Would you really, really go out there and work so hard? No. Uh, well, Curtis, my theory is that you, you, yeah. you don't think that anybody's going to have your back. But on that note, Bo Dieter, we have to go. I appreciate your contribution to join. Paul, make sure you talk to Eric Adams about John Miller. You're the guy that has a link to Eric Adams. I'm coming back tonight, and I plan on that. I do appreciate it. Bodito every Tuesday morning with Bernard McCurk and Sid Rosenberg. And for everyone else out there, Mayor Eric Adams has a meeting, a roundtable meeting with Muslim community leaders at 12 noon today. You know they're going to ask that John Miller be fired. Get on the phones right now. Call City Hall. Let Mayor Adams and his administration say do not at all uh, 
attempt to fire John Miller because he's kept us so safe and secure against uh, foreign terrorists for so many years. Gotta be a family affair now as Sly the Family Stone sings. You have Bo Dito on board, Congressman Peter King, yours truly, Curtis Slee, I'm sure John Katsimatidis and a whole host of others. We have to now battle, battle this effort in the city council to have John Miller removed as the head of the anti-terrorism NYPD unit that has kept us safe and secure since 9-11. I noticed that, uh, Peter King, you're having a bagel. Yeah, this young woman here, very nice. I mean, you offered me nothing. I've been sitting here all morning starving to death. You don't care. The price of wheat. You all the way in. the, The price of wheat, like everything else, skyrocketing. Why? Because with the embargo against Russia and Belarus, they produce most of the fertilizer that grows the wheat. And the breadbasket of all of Europe and other parts of the world is the Ukraine. And yep. obviously, they can't bring their their harvest uh, to uh, 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 to uh, the stores near you. So guess what? In addition to gasoline, home heating, fuel, oil, all petroleum products, uh, fertilizer goes up. The cost of wheat goes up. Corn, barley. Wow, you better take a reverse mortgage just to get that. Uh, but I'm a thoughtful woman was here today to offer me this. Well, you would let me stop to death right here in front That's of you. That's right. You would have got, as we say in yeah. Italian, manganut, yeah. bupkis. Right. Bupkis, bupkis. Right. bupkis. Anyway, up next, we got to talk about the lead story in the New York Post about MS-13. Congressman King has battled them. And I've battled them with the Guardian Angels. But Democrats, they gave him a pass for years. We'll keep you connected here on Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg here exclusively on WABC. This is lame. You could do better than this, guys. Uh, it's a headbanger's ball here, right? They're all Peter King, Congressman. They're all playing air guitar. And, you know, might as well what, play a little hacky sack here, too. The tradition of all white boys who think that they can play guitar while playing hacky sack. I don't know what's gotten into them because uh, Bernard McGurk is not here. He's convalescing. Uh, as uh, Sid Rosenberg is styling and profiling in the movie Gemini Lounge. Now, when he's out there, does he get free tanning also? Or what? I mean, how does that work? Botox? Let me, about the Botox? Let me tell you, that's all part, I'm sure, of his deal uh, to be featured in this movie. And it's interesting. I could have been a consultant because I know all the Gavones uh, who went to the Gemini Lounge, all the Jadrules, the Knuckle Draggers. One thing, though... I think uh, might stop this process as we've made this the theme of today's show, uh, Congressman Peter King, this attempt to oust John Miller from the police department as head of the anti-terrorist squad that has kept us safe and secure since 9-11. 
I think it's incumbent upon his very dear friend and mentor, Bill Bratton, the former police commissioner in New York, former transit police commissioner for David Dinkins, former police commissioner in Los Angeles. John Miller was there to work with him to get on that phone and talk sense to Eric Adams, who demeaned John Miller and is meeting with Muslim leaders today at 12 noon in a roundtable discussion. And you know they're going to want John Miller's head. I also demeaned the work that the NYPD did after 9-11 continued right through uh, as far as stopping the threats. I can tell you they came from all over the world to study what was happening, including people in Washington came here. The counterterrorism unit that was set up under Ray Kelly, maintained under Bill Bratton and John Miller, has just been exceptional. And there are people alive in New York today because of that. And for John Miller to be attacked for that, he should be getting medals and getting a parade on Fifth Avenue. And again, emphasize, neither Curtis and I uh, ourselves didn't discuss this before. My wife advised me the story in the paper today. Then you read it. This is all a setup. City Council on Friday, the mayor being spoken to yesterday, the story in the Daily News today, a big picture, the whole thing, quoting groups like CARE, which is, was an unindicted co-conspirator in a large Muslim terrorist case, financing case. I mean, this is just absolutely, it's a, it's a hit job on John Miller. And again, he could walk away today and make more money than half the people in New York. But he, he want, he's dedicated to protecting the city against terrorism and crime and all sides, but especially with terrorism. What they did here was just phenomenal. And uh, it is a setup. You can see how the layers have taken place to get rid of him. And, you know, one way or another, you and I have been in politics for a long time. This is a classic, classic setup. The legislature says something. The newspaper writes it up. The mayor takes a shot. And then, coincidentally, they're meeting with leaders of the groups that want Adams, uh, that want John Miller out. And, again, these people don't speak for the Muslim community. And I had the hearings in in, uh, Washington. I had all these groups... uh, picketing me, demonstrating in Times Square, and yet I, almost every witness I had was a Muslim. Yes. They came forward because yep. co- they wanted to help in their communities, and they knew that they were being undermined by these radicals. Oh, they tried to vilify and demonize you also, Peter King. So you've been through this, and in a small way, they did it to me. Now, believe it or not, 1992, as Bo had mentioned, the guy with the Santa Claus hat, Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, the evil one. Right. Uh, he was indicted along with others uh, for the attack of the World Trade Center the first time, 1992. Thank God they didn't topple that building, that first tower into the second tower. That was their plan. Ramsey Youssef was the master. But there was an unindicted co-conspirator, uh, Imam Siraj Wahaj, who ran the mosque on Bedford Avenue in Fulton. He sued me for $6 million. $6 million they came after I'm lucky if I have six cents after all the child support I pay. But it was it was an attempt to destroy me and get me off of WABC. Uh, and I went to state Supreme Court in Brooklyn. It was a, a three-day trial. And I won. And it was jury nullification. The jury, basically, it's six men, women, you know, the civil case, and then there's six alternates. I, I could tell from the moment that the judge gaveled the proceedings in that they were not going to find me guilty because it was so outrageous. Imagine, you can live in America. You can be part, an unindicted co-conspirator for the attack of the World Trade 92. You were the consigliere to Sheikh Rahman, and you get to sue Curtis Slewa right. for talking about this. 
Yeah, Isn't yeah. it great to be an American? It, it, it really is, I tell you. I guess in the long run it's great, but it's very, very frustrating when all of us should be united against Islamist terrorism, against the mob, against the Westies, all these groups. you got to put aside your ethnic identification when it comes to protecting innocent human life. And, uh, again, my experience is the overwhelming majority of Muslims are great people to deal with. But you have leaders in there. There's a radical. This group care is absolute disgrace. I say Bob Mueller, head of the FBI, and I'm not a big Mueller fan, the fact that he refused to even meet with them. Because they were so, uh, he thought, so dangerous. Speaking of international terrorists, number one now in the world of uh, gang terrorists is MS-13. They even have chapters in, believe it or not, Cairo in Egypt, throughout South America, throughout Central America, throughout the United States. I remember battling them, Congressman uh, Peter King, when they first emerged in Los Angeles. Many of them were refugees from the Civil War in El Salvador, and they first came to L.A. But the Mexicans uh, ruled the streets, their gangs, 18th Street, which you have out in Long Island. And the Mexicans were bigger than the El Salvadorians. So they were, like, beating up the Salvadorians, taking their money. So, like, history tells us when you're getting preyed upon, what do people do? They form their own gang, who then eventually preys on their own. So we were battling them out in the streets of L.A. I actually watched a member of MS-13 slit one of the guardian angels' throats from ear to ear. Luckily, we were able to save him. Uh, we put a pounding on this guy. But they take that as a badge of courage. And you saw it. They spread all over the country. And they ended up out in Suffolk and in Nassau County, particularly your congressional district, Central Islip and Brentwood. And the reason we bring it up, it's the front page of today's uh, New York Post. The lure that they use before they kill their adversaries or even their own honeypots, they use young ladies to befriend a guy. And they say, why don't you meet me in the Mm -hmm. park? And then all of a sudden, the guy, he, he's, oh, he's all excited. Wow, this young lady's interested in me. Mm-hmm. He walks into the park, and then here is MS-13 with their machetes, and they just slice them and then bury them right there. And they've done this for dozens and dozens of people all over the United States, especially in the Northeast Corridor, but especially uh, in your neck of the woods. Yeah, that was in my district, uh, primarily uh, Brentwood and Central Isop. There's a lot of hardworking people. But this group, MS-13, was in there. Many of them had come up actually when you had those young people crossing the border and they were put in these school districts in uh, uh, Suffolk County in uh, uh, Central Isle and Brentwood. But in 2017, uh, well, there was an 18-month period where 25 innocent people were butchered with machetes by MS-13. <clears throat> as far as I know, not one of them was white. They were all uh, minorities. They were all uh, immigrants. They were people who – they were killing their own – and it was, this wasn't even for drugs. It wasn't for anything. It was just to show that they were the top guys in town. And that, uh, those, uh, I, th- I think it was these four that, are, uh, that were killed that the trial involves now. Then not only do they cut the bodies up, they vi- and send the videos to the families to show the families what they had done. These people were animals. And, uh, again, 25 murders in 18 months. And then President Trump got involved. The Attorney General Sessions got involved. The DEA, the FBI, the Suffolk County Police, Homeland Security, ICE all got involved. I remember when uh, Jeff Sessions came to uh, Central Islip to the courthouse, when President Trump came to Brentwood, the belly of the beast. You had all these so-called leaders, Hispanic leaders out there picketing against uh, the attorney general, 
picking against Donald Trump. Then he came back again the following year into Nassau County to the Morelli Center in Bethpage. Since Donald Trump got involved, there has not been one MS-13 murder in my district. And yet that goes unrecorded, unmentioned. And the only way to do it is just to go after them, just stay on top of them. And these people are animals. That's the only way. There's no way you can – no other word used to describe them except maybe murderers, killers, terrorists. But they are animals. They really are. And the people who have been hurt the most have been the uh, uh, Hispanic Americans, the minority, the Im- – Im- Im- and some of these uh, immigrants are undocumented. They're afraid to go to the police. They're afraid to talk about it. They, are li- they were living at the mercy of MS-13 – Right now, they're under control, but they're there. Yeah. You let your foot off their neck, and they're coming back. And they extort their own in all different ways. But it was interesting. I remember you flying in with the president and then Attorney General Jeff Sessions on Air Force One. And you went right to the federal courthouse in Central Islip. Snipers on the roof. Yeah. Because MS-13 was saying, okay, uh, we're bad hombres. And and demonstrators outside picketing. Yeah. Right. And so uh, naturally, the president, uh, Trump, uh, called them bad hombres. Say, oh, (laughs) bad hombres. We'll show you what bad hombres we are. (laughs) And people are like, oh, my God, they're threatening the president, Congressman Peter King, Jeff Sessions, the attorney general. And the reason that they they felt that they could was prior to that, you had Andrew Cuomo, the governor, calling ICE thugs. Yep. Thugs over and over. Not calling MS-13 thugs. Right. ICE. The individuals in the federal government who are best able to track their movements from the country of origin right. here, they bravely go in and take these guys down. They're murderers, rapists, thugs, and they've been vilified out there. And remember, uh, before President uh, Donald Trump uh, took them on, uh, then-President Barack Obama treated them just like he did ISIS. He told them, oh, they're right. JV. Right, JV, right. They're the JV. Meantime... They started expanding all throughout America yep. from Los Angeles. That was their base. And then all throughout America. And as you said, when the uh, children came across the border and they were being settled, MS-13 immediately began to recruit them. And some of those kids actually came across as MS-13 operatives. And uh, either operatives, which some were, others were uh, kids who had families back in uh, El Salvador and they were told if you didn't cooperate, if you didn't recruit, your family's going to be killed. I remember going to a school, it was a, uh, a middle school, and the principal of the school, African-American woman, dedicated, and she had three kids come up to me and talk to me. And she said to me later, okay, you know, which one was MS-13? The kid that I picked last was the MS-13 leader in the school. This kid was incredibly articulate, endearing. He was like the all-American boy, but he was an MS-13 operator. Also, if we're talking about ICE, i got to give credit to Sheriff Errol Toulon, a democratically elected, a Democrat who's elected sheriff and re-elected in Suffolk County. He cooperates with ICE. He had ICE actually in the jail, while other sheriffs and uh, mayors were throwing ICE out. He worked with them, and that's one of the reasons why uh, right now MS-13 is kept under control. But again, if we don't stand with people like Errol Toulon and the police commissioners and the FBI and the DEA and all of them in uh, Suffolk County and Nassau County, Pat Riley does a great job in Nassau County. They're going to come back. They're there. Oh, they're, yeah. they're just waiting to come back and kill. Oh, yeah, and, and uh, Peter King, because I have Guardian Angels patrolling not only Central Islip, right. Brentwood, where they were strong, but also Riverhead they were strong yep. because the jail is right there, the county jail. So they come on their bicycles because they didn't have licenses. You see them driving around, you know, on their Schwinn Big Chief bicycles. They would go to the prison, and on visitor's day, the generals were inside, their leaders, and they would give the instructions 
to their members, and then their members would get an SRO, a single-room occupancy room in Riverhead, and then started ruining Riverhead. And it was spreading all over. It was going into West Hempstead, Hempstead. It was going all throughout. In fact, even Hampton Bay. Hampton Bay, I walk into a cantina out there. It's an MS-13 cantina. Like, they're looking at me, what are you doing here? Because the only people who came in here were MS-13. And then they had battles with 18th Street. And you're absolutely right. You need to be saluted because you not only brought this to the nation's attention, you got the Attorney General Jeff Sessions and especially then President Donald Trump to prioritize that. And they have not been those kind of problems since. No, there's been not not one murder, as far as I know, in my district by MS-13 since President Trump got involved. But as I said, they're there. They're still there. They keep locking them up, but they're still there. And they are ready to turn, get turned loose if ever we let, you know, let go of the pressure on them. Well, when we come back not far from Riverhead in the South Shore, the South Bend there, is the Cuomo compound of Chris Cuomo, a.k.a. Fredo, uh, of Andrew Cuomo. And Joe Pacoco, who was their wartime consigliere, who's out of federal prison, having done a six-year bid for corruption. And they are planning. It's almost like uh, this is the 50th anniversary of The Godfather. Remember at the baptism at Mount St. Laredo when Michael Corleone tells everyone at the baptism, we settle all scores. Apparently, Andrew Cuomo is ready to settle all scores. You know Andrew Cuomo. I know Andrew Cuomo. We've grown up with the Cuomos. Let's discuss Potentially what Andrew Cuomo might do now that in this most recent poll, he's just four points behind Governor Hochul. Right here on the Bernard McGurk, Sid Rosenberg show. They're away today. And so you have Congressman Peter King. Yours truly, Curtis Lee, was set to take you the rest of the way to 10 o'clock right here on WABC. This is Lydia Reports on 77 WABC. Here's Lydia Serrani. Well, the man who became the symbol of everything that's wrong with bail reform is finally behind bars. He smeared feces on a woman. He attacked a Jewish man in a hate crime in Brooklyn. He's been arrested 40 times before. He had four open cases against him. He appeared before a judge, cursed her out, not even a psychiatric evaluation, none of that, everything. The judge still let him out. Finally, Frank Abraquois is behind bars in Rikers as we speak because he threw a dumbbell. He almost killed somebody in Harlem, throwing a heavy object through a glass window, threatening to kill that person. This is what it took. This guy has almost 50 arrests now, 50 arrests. He's emblematic of what's wrong with the system. And he goes on YouTube, guys. He goes on YouTube to talk about his life. He lives in a nice hotel right here on Bronx Boulevard in the Bronx. And he talks about, and the he shows the video in the YouTube video of his nice accommodations and everything like that, his nice clothes and everything. So here's him bragging about the benefits that he gets from the state. Take a listen. And I still receive SSI as of yet, right now. Right now, I get monthly benefits every month because I'm a crazy dude that do a lot of dumb <laughs> That's a fact. <laughs> you, feel, you feel me? Look, watch this, though. SSI, 300K. My taxes... From last year, I ain't even claim it as of yet. I still got that in my personal belonging. That's a fact. Yeah. Clearly disturbed. Uh, Lydia, he's not alone. You would be surprised at the number of single, able-bodied men and women who are on SSI at the end of the month. Some of them living in shelters. They're not paying uh, 
any of the maintenance fees for being in a city shelter. They get an SSI check because some somewhere in their life uh, there was a problem uh, that qualified them for the special allotment of Social Security. And remember, the other part of that video he put out, I responded to, he challenged. Well, this one is, this This is a new video. This is one he put out just two days ago, this clip that I got. The other one is from before. Yeah, this is a recent one that he was bragging, but right. the other one where he said, ladies, stay away from me. Yeah, and uh, he also challenged uh, everyone to basketball because he was draped in NBA paraphernalia. Expensive stuff. Very, that's expensive, yeah. And I went up to Hunts Point because that's where he hangs out and he shoots hoops. And I missed him by about an hour. I was going to shoot hoops with him and take him on, prove him that this white boy could jump. But he was defiant, and he's saying, well, if you're not going to come shoot hoops with me, you better bring your 9. You better bring your AK-47. You better be prepared for war. He made a mockery and continues to make a mockery of our ineffective, weak, impotent criminal justice system. Yeah, these people – he was in the Bronx. Uh, I'm sorry, Congressman. He oh, was ahead, in the no. Bronx, and the very next day he was let out where he smeared the feces. Like, I'm a woman, and I've taken the subway, and you have it where a guy like Kai tries to come and talk to you. That happens all the time, and you ignore him. You just pretend like he's not there, and that's all this woman did. She's at the 241st Street Station Wakefield uh, uh, platform, and she's waiting for the train. He came up. He said, hey, Mommy. She ignored him. He went back into the train, took a bag. You know, did number two in it, came back with it steaming hot and smeared it all over her because she ignored him. And then the very next day, he came back again. As soon as the cops arrested him, not the very next day, after he was arrested, he went back right there again. Can you imagine? She probably saw him again. This is horrific. Yeah. Sorry, Congressman. Well, it's just one of so many yeah. who are so defiant, so belligerent because the criminal justice system uh, even judges, uh, you know, we talk about, oh, with the uh, uh, no bail provision, you know, if we'd only roll that back. Some of these decisions, Lydia Serrano, have been made by judges. A right they, for the judges. Right. right. So giving the them judges discretion. make the decisions to cut them loose without citing the fact that, oh, this is a, uh, a no bail issue. Uh, we have liberal progressive judges. There are no Republican or conservative judges in New York City. They're all liberals and progressives. You're certainly very few, and that's why it's important that you give the judges discretion. But you're right. A lot of those judges are terrible. They're really bad. They're going to put these, you know, cut them loose Bruce type types. Well, that's the that's the problem. And the ju- the judges are just, dis- I mean, this judge, she could have easily, like you, you, Curtis and I, we spoke about this. She could have kept him just for a psychiatric evaluation. The guy clearly has issues. When he came in again this time, too, he was cursing out the judge. And finally, this judge put him behind bars for like, what was it, $15,000 bail. He doesn't have the money for it. And so he has to appear in court in April. But, I mean, at what point do you say enough is enough? He's he's over well, 40 arrests now. He's almost 50, 50 arrests now. He's 37 years old. Not far from that last stop on the IRT where he attacked that woman with his human feces. Uh, in the Belmont section, you had C. Blue, uh, the big rapper, uh, who a judge chastised the police because they had the gall congressman Peter King and Lydia Serrani to search him, they find the gun right. on him, right? He's already out on a gun charge. Mm-hmm. He's already out on a gun charge. The judge chastised the police saying they had no right to search him. Are you kidding? Everybody knows this guy carries guns. You're not going to give police an opportunity to do a stop and frisk of a known gun-toting felon? And in that case, they do give Eric Adams credit for standing with the cops, hoping he does it in other cases. But you're right. Imagine having a judge like that on the bench. 
making such a stupid decision? They were all over in Manhattan, yeah. right. in the Bronx, in Queens, and uh, <clears throat> in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is the worst. You have the DA there. I don't know if you're aware, Lydia. First time you get pinched with a gun. It used to be guaranteed year or more, Congressman King. Didn't matter. You get pinched with a nine millimeter, right. loaded, unloaded, a guaranteed year. Now you get remediation for first bus. It was a guy in the Giants. My brain is gone. The guy who, who, who caught the winning pass in the Super Bowl. I found him with a gun. He did yeah. over a year. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That was during the Bloomberg years. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, no, no. So, he, so it's and out of shot, control. He had shot himself. He wasn't yep. even bothering anybody yep. else. Yeah. But yeah, imagine, Lydia, we talk about, right. oh, if yep. they roll back. Boris. That was right. Name, right. Uh, if they roll it back to where there's a bail situation, you still have judges out there who are making these crazy decisions. Right. This judge for the feces attack, the initial attack, her name is Judge Wanda Lasitra. Judge Wanda Lasitra. And we need to call out these judges, too, because how dare she? She's a woman. How could she allow this? And he was already had a, a hate crime attack in Brooklyn. He had four open cases against him. When he came in, he was cursing at her. He said, why am I still here? I'm effing tired of it. I'm hungry. You know, yelling and screaming at her. And she just let him go. Not even electronic supervision. Nothing. Nothing. Not even giving him uh what's it called to order protection against the woman. He went right back exactly to that platform the very next day after she let him out. It's her fault. It's her fault. That person could have been killed in Harlem. This is all on her. And I the DA's actually asked for him to be remanded without bail. I think fifteen thousand is too low. I think he should remain behind bars for a very long time. But yeah, I mean, I don't know what happened. Plaxico Burris shot himself in the ground. Remember P. Diddy with J-Lo? Remember that's why they sure. broke up? Sure. Because he had the gun on him and everything like that. Like, we need cops uh, to be able to do their jobs. They arrest them. They're just what the plain, well, they're not the plainclothes unit. They actually have their name tags on them and they're wearing uniforms. But how many arrests did they make? They, they made a bunch of arrests uh, just in the last two days that they started. There was 29 shootings just over the weekend here in New York City, 24 separate incidents. When's enough going to be enough Well, that uh, we have to stop blaming the guns and start blaming the perps? Lydia, we were talking about how the city council wants John Miller fired, who is in charge of the anti-terrorism unit of the NYPD that has kept us safe and secure since 9-11. Yet all the DAs made their appeal for their budget. They all said they needed more money. Because they need more assistant district attorneys. To do what? Just to file paperwork to turn these criminals loose back in the streets. The gall, the chutzpah, the people who are responsible for turning them loose into the streets are district attorneys want more taxpayer money to hire more ADAs who are just going to turn them loose. And some of these DAs have actually facilitated this. I know uh, McMahon in Staten Island, Linda Katz in Queens are doing their job. These other guys, Greg here in Manhattan, guy in Brooklyn, Bronx, Terrible. I mean, this is just... Uh, Eric the, Gonzalez, imagine you get clipped yeah. with a gun. Right. You don't go to jail. You go to remediation. Once a week, you right. come in, they give you Oreo cookies, a little milk. We discuss why you were carrying a gun. You don't do any time. <laughs> but anyway, thank you, uh, Lydia Serrani. I know you'll be with us at 5 o'clock tonight on the five, Cats Roundtable. Yes. At five. Well, five o'clock, five o'clock hats at night. We'll have Professor Alan Dershowitz. We always have a great show. We're talking about the news from around the world to around the block. All the newsmakers will tell you about what's the latest on inflation, the latest on Ukraine, the biggest stories. And, you know, you always hear about these regressives talking about the black and brown suspects that go to jail. And if they if we enforce these laws, that's what will end up happening. How about the morgues? How about the hospitals that are being filled with the black and brown victims? Because those are the 
people that are being predominantly killed by these black and brown suspects. And until we actually speak out the truth about what's really going on, who the real perpetrators are, we are going to continue to see chaos run supreme on the streets. So again, Cats at Night, 5 o'clock, John Katzmatidis, you don't want to miss it. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. Uno. He's your numero uno. All right, it's a headbangish ball here. Our staff rocking out, playing air guitar and hacky sack in the great white tradition of trying to prove that you could be in a rock and roll band. But let me tell you something. I heard you, uh, Congressman Peter King, last night with John Katzenberger on the 5 o'clock roundtable as you were discussing shrinkage and inflation. Because obviously he's an expert on not only petroleum products, but also on groceries and everything that is sold in a supermarket. And he said it's going up, up, up. And there is, <laughs> he's saying Americans are going to be in ultra shock at how much they're going to be paying, not only at the pump for their home heating fuel oil, for their other petroleum products, but also products, of course, aboard for a loaf of bread, right. milk, all the basics, including he was most interested in the shrinkage of the Oreo, Oreo cookies. cookies. Yeah, actually, uh, as far as the price, yes, I guessed up was four eighty three a gallon in Nassau County. Commissioner, what that's going to do? And as I said before, I think the White Castle cheeseburgers are shrinking. Well, listen, I have to raise a point of uh, personal privilege and give credit to Gabby, the young woman that works here. I drove all the way in, no food. I didn't complain. You didn't offer me anything. And she could tell that I must have been in distress. And she, on her own, went out, got me a bagel, brought it into me. So, Gabby, thank you. The one person here, this is the guy, Lou Rufino, sits there. He doesn't care about anybody but himself. You're sitting here. You're all happy. And uh, Justin, he didn't care, but Gabby, thank you for caring about a man in distress. Guess what? You get ugats from me. <laughs> I know, I know. You get bupkis from <laughs> I'm me. I'm lucky, right? <laughs> Although Margot Katsimatidis has put out quite a spread every day. You go into the kitchen here at WABC. We had nothing when Cumulus owned WABC. Nothing. You had cobwebs. Now you get a full spread. Yep. You could actually eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner here. Courtesy of Margot Katsimatidis. Uh, Margot is great. She should be a head chef somewhere. She really is terrific. But seriously, on, on this issue with prices, you're right. As John Katsimatidis always says, the rich people can afford to go along with it. But this is a tax increase on working families. They're going to get killed when they start going to the supermarket. They go to the gas station. Really go anywhere. And so much of this is self-inflicted by the president, President Biden, by his executive order stopping the pipeline, uh, cutting back on uh, – drilling and exploration. These are self-inflicted wounds, and it's going to affect us. It's affecting us as far as our dealings with Russia, as far as Ukraine, and also the average person trying to survive through all this. And by the way, you can't even do what we used to do. Remember, in 1973, we had the gas crisis because um, Israel was attacked, Yom Kippur. Anwar Sadat sent his tanks through the Sinai. 
Halafez uh, Assad, the father of Bashir Assad, the butcher of Damascus, sent his tanks to the Golan Heights. We were at the height of DEFCON then as far as uh, the possibility of a nuclear war. Yeah. yeah. And uh, at that point, the Arab nations had uh, Israel up against the wall. And the Russians were flying in supplies, resupplying the Egyptians and the Syrians. And then Henry Kissinger had a conversation with Richard Nixon, the president, and said, we got to save Israel because the Russians are loading them up with all kinds of their hardware and military hardware. Sounds like what's happening now. And Richard Nixon sent flight after flight in there. And the Israelis uh, were able to repulse the Egyptians, repulse uh, the Syrians. But as a result... Saudi Arabia, that led all the Arab-producing nations, said, oh, so the United States, you're supporting your good friends Israel and the Jews? Guess what? Survive without any of our oil. And they turned off all the oil. And remember, we had gas lines. The cars lined up for blocks with plenty of gas. And remember, you had to either get your gas on an odd or an even day. I was pumping gas at that time. And for the first time, people had to get a locked gas cap because people were siphoning gas late at night. They'd get a garden hose. They'd sneak up to your car. They'd go, (laughs) and then siphon the gas. And then you'd go to start your car in the morning and no gas. Also, my daughter was born November 29th of that year. We had a cold winter. And she was a baby. She had her days and nights mixed up. So she was awake all night, crying and screaming, carrying on. My wife and I, mostly my wife, you're walking around. The house is freezing, and you're trying to make sure the kid doesn't freeze to death. They were tough times. People forget that. And remember, there was a movement here in our country to say, why are we supporting the Jews in Israel? Look, look, look at what's doing to our standard of living. Everything costs more because the price of petroleum, first of all, was limited supply. And when you have limited supply... The costs go up. Then, years later in 1979, that's why when you're going through... Going back to 73, Richard Nixon, he was fighting off Watergate with all the criticism he gets. He saved Israel. There's no doubt. And he knew that his days were numbered, but he still did what he had to do. And it was, again, a courageous act, a bold act, and Nixon doesn't get the credit he deserves. Six years later, it's 1979. And you think that you're in pain now having to pay for your gas and your other petroleum products... All of a sudden, the Shah of Iran flees. The Ayatollah comes in from Paris. He takes over. No oil supply coming out of Iran. We convince Saddam Hussein, our friend there. Right. He wasn't Hitler yet. You know, we all, you know we're going to go to war against somebody when we label them Hitler. Uh, we give him gas. He goes to war against Iran for six years. There's, there's no petroleum products because through the Straits of Hormuz, they're bombing each another's oil tankers. So, again, high rise of gas, and then Three Mile Island takes place. We think it's going to melt down to the core of the earth. It was like before Chernobyl. So people are in panic buying, (laughs) and there was a depletion of oil. And as a result, no supply. The The prices shot up. Everything was just terrible. Yeah, so we've been through this before, ladies and gentlemen, 73, 79. I lived through it. If you're a baby boomer, obviously, Peter King, as congressman, you lived through it. Unfortunately, the hipsters and millennials, all these new generations, uh, they're not taught this in history. They have no idea. We've been down this road before. We've had embargoes put against us, as well as obviously now we've put embargoes up against uh, Russia and Belarus. And we're going to be paying higher prices because we fail to realize they produce most of the fertilizer in the world. 
So to grow the crops in the uh, heart of America, it requires their fertilizer. Wheat that they generate in Russia, Belarus, and especially the Ukraine, uh, all those supplies are gone. Corn, uh, rye, all of that is going to rise. And, you know, that's what starts riots around the world when they can't buy bread. Right. When there's no bread, that's when all of a sudden there's insurrection in the streets. Now, there could be tough times ahead. And you mentioned uh, young people. Don Imus used to say this. So many young people today would think history began with them. They yes. think it was the first time there's ever been a shortage. No, there have been tough times in the past. I think people today are less ready to accept it because they don't have a sense of history. They haven't gone through it before. But no, these are, you know people should realize, listen, I support all the sanctions. I support doing what we can. But there's going to be consequences. Well, yes, well, everything is going to go up. Well, when we come guys. back, I want to sort of uh, find out from you because I remember a very spirited discussion you had for, with your fellow Long Islander, originally from Levittown, Bill O'Reilly, who's heard here not only on Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg's show, he's heard at 12 noon right before Charlie Kirk, and then he has his own hour at night from 9 right. to 10. Boy, you had a spirited discussion about the no-fly zone. We'll revisit that and so much more right here on 77 AM WABC. Oh, so we got the raise the roof music here. They're dancing and prancing in the studio because they need to revive themselves, Congressman Peter King. Urofino's out of control on that. Of course. I'll never forget that day. In fact, it haunts me when I was doing mornings with Ron Kuby and I saw Lou Rufino walk in and they were showing him the board and what it was like to run the show. And I looked at Ron and I said, they're bringing Imus over here. He said, no way. I said, they're bringing Imus over here. That's Lou Rufino. And he's back. He's back. And he's out there in the Irish Riviera, the Rockaways now. Anyway. Um, that's where Jimmy Breslin's uh, son, Kevin, lives out, out in the Rockaways there. Oh, yeah. we. Uh, why didn't you come in with the Ramones? You know, Rockaway Beach, Rockaway Beach. That's right. Maybe you'll come in with that. But meantime, uh, yeah. I heard a super spirited discussion between two Long Island boys uh, the guy who went to Chaminade, same school that Al D'Amato went to, yep. and you, the Brooklyn prepper. Uh, and it was all about MiGs uh, from Poland going to the Ukrainians and then also the no-fly zone. Have you uh, changed your mind at all? Because I remember uh, Bill O'Reilly said, if you give them those MiGs, the Soviets, a.k.a. the Russians, they'll shoot them down. Yeah, the, uh, actually the argument was uh, not so much about the no-fly zone but about the uh, MiGs. And I was saying that General Keene, a four-star general who has been right far more than most people, he did support sending in the MiGs. And Bill O'Reilly said he doesn't trust General Keene. He doesn't care what General Keene said. And I just said if it comes to military uh, abilities or military strategy, I'd much rather go with General Keene. I, I, I do think we should do it. And, again, that's a, it could be a close call, but I would never disregard General Keene. I remember he's the guy who came up with the surge policy. He and Dave Petraeus and uh, General Petraeus. Uh, in, in Iraq, and it worked. It was the first really, you know, uh, prior generals who just sort of, I think, were waiting for the war to be over. Uh, Kane wanted to crush the uh, uh, Iraqi insurgents. So I have great faith in General Kane. You know, Bill O'Reilly, is, Bill is a friend. I've known him for years. Uh, my wife and I have gone to dinner with him. But on this one, we disagree. But I just have a great regard for General Kane. And I think that uh, getting the MiGs in there, listen, if Putin says this is an act of war, we can't let him be deciding what's right and what's wrong. I mean, uh, he's violating every international law in the book. I mean, if it's 
uh, you know, we're sending in stingers, we're sending in all sorts of weapons. And to me, if, the, if you're going to have Ukrainian pilots flying the planes, and by the way, I would disparage the uh, uh, Ukrainian Air Force. Look what the Army has done. Who would have thought the Ukrainian Army would be tying the Russians up in knots? So if the Ukrainian feel their pilots can do it, I say they prove they can do it on the ground. I think they can do it in the air. Well, the Poles are absorbing most of the refugees fleeing from the Ukraine. Uh, and they have been our best allies in all of Europe. Yeah. The Poles have stood up to Vladimir Putin before he told them, you take any of the defensive uh, missile batteries that the United States gives you, and I will turn Poland into a glass highway. And they say, go ahead. Yeah. So they've stood by us. They now, also with us in Afghanistan. They did a great job of fighting. And some of the other countries were there in uh, form, but not in reality. They were sort of hanging out. The Poles were terrific. But there's a backstory here. A lot of people wonder, well, why did Poland jump the gun and not inform the Biden administration or the Pentagon that they wanted to give their old MiGs to the Ukraine? Poland was hoping we give them the old MiGs and we get the brand new F-22s from the United States, which is the state of the art. From 100 miles away, an F-22 can take you out of the sky. So they figured, hey, we'll give them all our Air Force and hopefully the United States will give us the F-22s. Also, I think they were having back-channel talks because if you remember Secretary of State Blinken, he sort of implied this was going to happen. And then I think the polls probably sensed that Joe Biden was getting cold feet a bit, so they thought they would just jump out. Now we have Lieutenant uh, Colonel uh, Greg Kelly, son of Ray Kelly, who actually flew in the no-fly zone as a Marine pilot in the war against Iraq of Saddam Hussein. He has said, no, no, you got to understand, you put up a no-fly zone, it's war. Uh, Somebody shoots at you, you got to shoot back at them. If it's a SAM missile battery and if it's in Russia... Then you gotta you gotta take it out because obviously you gotta protect not only yourself but your other fly mates. Uh, what's your position on a no fly zone? Yeah, I would say right now I would not go with a no fly zone right now, but I wouldn't rule it out just because Putin says it's an act of war. Listen, what he's doing is an act of war, and we are killing Russians with our Stinger missiles and killing Russians. It's the intelligence, it's the radar we're giving to Ukrainians is killing Russians. So. It's really six to one, half dozen the other. I understand the distinction. I don't think we need the no-fly zone right now. And I think uh, Zelensky, when he is coming in pushing for the no-fly zone, he knows he's not going to get it. But he figures to make up for that, we've got to give him more and more uh, weaponry, which we, we are doing. But I do think the MiGs, I agree with General Keene on this, who I've known for a long time. He's a great, great American. I think we should be sending the MiGs uh, to Ukraine. Well, you know, it would be interesting. We have a Long Island roundtable discussion. You're from Long Island. Bill O'Reilly's from Long Island. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Greg Kelly was raised in Garden City. He's a Long Islander. Can you imagine? You would agree. You would disagree. (laughs) What a spirited debate it would be. You can catch Greg Kelly every Monday through Fridays from 1 to 3. You don't want to miss it because he's actually served in that capacity as a no-fly zone pilot for the United States Marine Corps. Greg Greg Kelly did heroic uh, duty in Iraq. He was over there. Uh, he's again, he's an American patriot. I have great respect for Greg Kelly, his father, Ray Kelly, who was an outstanding police commissioner. And Bill O'Reilly has been a real warrior uh, fighting for conservative American principles. But you, Curtis Sliwa, the guy from Brooklyn, setting up a fight with three other guys. We can fight it out. You can stand <laughs> well, in and laugh. No, no. Yeah, it's well, great. we'll invite great. a fourth guy. He's new to Long Island, but he's right now out in the Cuomo compound of Fredo, Chris Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo is plotting his comeback. He is one of yours now. He's out there in Southampton. He's already made some initial moves. 
And he shocked the political world. A recent Emerson College poll indicated in a match involving he and Governor Hochul, who has just destroyed the Democratic competition in all previous polls. He's only four points behind. We'll discuss that. And clearly the vindication for Mike Kumbadichich and your very dear friend. I've seen, I saw you campaigning for him when he was running for president down in Florida. I was there for him. You were there. Rudy, yes. Rudy Giuliani yep. over the Hunter Biden laptop. How come none of the 51 so-called experts who said that Rudy was a Russian stooge, that it was a Russian disinformation project, haven't apologized to him privately or publicly as the old gray lady, the New York Times last week said, yep, it's all true. It's all true. Rudy was right. The New York Post was right. And none of them have gotten apologies from their critics. As we continue here, Bernard McGurk, Sid Rosenberg away. It's yours truly, Curtis Sliwa and Congressman Peter King, exclusively here at WABC. Oh, so it's a little Stones action here, huh? Huh? Lou? Uh-huh. All right, but still, we have no Rockaway Beach by the Ramones. You promised us it's now your home turf. Uh, that's where Lou lives here. I remember him when he was in Maspeth. He's now in the Irish Riviera from his days uh, with Imus. So they put them all back together with Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg here. You know, somehow you can't get away from people. I mean, you, you, we got stuck with Sid, with Bernie, now we got Lou here. And you, you're like perpetual. You're, yeah, no matter where well, you go, you run into Curtis. Well, remember know? when John Katzmatidis uh, brought me back five days after I lost to Eric Adams in the mayoral election. Right. He said, uh, you have a no-cut contract for 30 years. Uh, ABC stands for Always Broadcasting Curtis. I said, John, you really think I'm going to live to, like, 96? I said, I'm like a cat with nine lives, and I've used up eight of them. He said, don't worry about it. And I've been broadcasting ever since. When but, I come in this morning, I was afraid maybe uh, you wouldn't be here. You know, you hit by a cab or something. I don't well, know what's going to happen Let me here, tell you yeah. what happened. Look at, it, look at this. Read what it says on the back of this uh, slate. Columbia University. Right. This is an Apple, I guess, a combination slate computer. I forget what you call it. So I find this in the morning coming here, and I'm trying to figure out that it's got to be valuable how to get in contact. And I'm a Luddite. I barely know what to do, so I'm going to bring it to an Apple store. Some some person, maybe a teacher or a student at Columbia University, it's a very, very valuable iPad. I'm going to make sure he gets it. But because I got all discombobulated, I forgot my own cell phones. (laughs) So I forgot where I left my cell phones so I had to go all the way back to the Upper West Side and then get all the way back here. Uh, and let's just say I arrived right on time to join you as we're substituting for Bernard McGurk and Sid Rosenberg. Sid Rosenberg's out in Hollywood. He's participating in the making of the movie The Gemini Lounge that I know all about because I grew up uh, in its shadow and battled every miscreant who was in that place. 
and obviously Bernard McGarrick, who's uh, continuing to recover. Yeah, Bernie is a great guy. I know he's going to get better. He's, uh, I was talking to him yesterday. That guy doesn't quit. He's, he's going to be back strong, stronger than ever. And the fact that we're filling in for him today, again, it's really standing in big shoes. Well, it's SOS today. It's SOS. Uh, both Peter King, Congressman, and yours truly, we smell a setup. Oh, On yeah. uh, Friday, it was a city council hearing, yep. and the police have to come and they have to testify. And John Miller was coming to testify because he is not only the head of the anti-terrorism unit that has kept us safe and secure since the attack on 9-11, uh, but he's also now the quasi-spokesperson, because he really is the best spokesperson for the police Deputy department. commissioner, he does everything, yeah. So they're grilling him about the, um, the anti-terrorist unit that went undercover and went into mosques and bookstores and kept their ear close to a lot of uh, people who were sympathetic to al-Qaeda at the time, even after the attack on 9-11. And they didn't just do it here they did it in Patterson. They did it in Jersey City. Right. Uh, they were willing to go anywhere. And people say, what are the, uh, what's the NYP doing in Jersey? That's where the first World Trade Center yes. attack was planned, in Jersey, yes. Jersey City. Yeah, Absolutely. So uh, John Miller was all part of that. He's led the effort. And now with the statements that Eric Adams made yesterday, it seems he's left John Miller dangling. He's saying what John Miller did and what the NYP did then to keep us safe and secure was wrong. It was a violation of Muslim rights. I'm scratching my head and saying, wait, Eric Adams was, was there. He, he talks about what it was like right. after the attack on 9-11, how we thought at any moment there would be other attacks. And there would have been. And now I think it's incumbent upon one of his big supporters, who disappointed me in my run against him because he was so effusive in praise and support for Eric Adams, that after my second debate at Channel 7, uh, Eric uh, went with his son to the Fortune Society dinner. Great organization. It gives men and women an opportunity at a new life when they get out of jail. They've done great work. Right. And the um, uh, the person they were honoring that night was Michael Bloomberg. And Eric Adams got up to the microphone and said, Michael Bloomberg is like Jesus walking across the Sea of Galilee. And I'm like, Madonna, my. You're laying it on a little thick here. It was only one Jesus. But anyway, he's, Bloomberg was very supportive of Eric Adams, even though Eric Adams attacked the whole stop and frisk policy of Bloomberg Which and Ray Kelly. Which reached fruition under Mike Bloomberg and Ray Kelly, and I supported a thousand percent that saved thousands of lives. And you're right, no one did more in that area than Mike Bloomberg. Adams criticized it, and yet Mike Bloomberg still said So yeah. we know how close Michael Bloomberg is to the mayor, Eric Adams. They talk uh, every week. In fact, Eric Adams has said, I talked to uh, former uh, Mayor de Blasio, I don't know why, uh, a few times a week, and I speak to Michael Bloomberg a few times a week. I think it's incumbent on Michael Bloomberg, who put together with uh, uh, Ray Kelly uh, some of the best anti-terrorist tactics that went beyond what even the federal government was doing, which John Miller was a leader of, a participant of, and he's got to be able to speak to Eric Adams, Michael Bloomberg, and say, don't do this. Eric Adams today, this is making news, is sitting down with Muslim leaders at 12 noon. That's why I believe it's a setup. The city council went at John Miller on Friday 
The mayor did not back him up yesterday. There's a big article in the Daily News. Big picture of the whole bit, right. He condemned John right. Mueller. He Absolutely. said what he did was wrong and what the anti-terrorism task force and the NYPD was wrong to the Muslim community. And now it just so happens that Eric Adams is meeting with the Muslim leaders of the five boroughs of the city of New York at 12 noon. And the Daily News is relying on so-called leaders like CARE, Committee on American Islamic Relations, which, again, was named as an unindicted co-conspirator and a major terrorism case. Unbelievable. So um, I'm hoping our owner-operator, John Katsimatidis, who has connections with everyone we've mentioned today, it's all hands on deck, SOS. We've got to support John Miller, who has supported all of us by keeping us safe and secure by leading this effort against terrorism. The first man to interview Osama bin Laden in the hills of Afghanistan. He warned us back then for ABC News. Uh, We didn't really pay attention until it was too late, and then he led the effort along with, uh, uh, at that time, obviously, Rudy Giuliani, uh, Bernard Carrick, and then eventually with Bill Bratton, John Miller, and then Michael Bloomberg. They've, they, everybody's got to get on the mayor's and again, case. make it clear, neither you or I have spoken to John Miller. We're doing this on our own. We're not even doing it for John Miller's sake. Again, he's losing money. Every day he works in New York, he's losing money. This guy can make a fortune. He's a dedicated patriot. For the good of New York, we need John Miller. Forget John Miller personally. He, he will always survive. For the good of New York City, we need John Miller in that job. I remember when he was a kid reporter. I think he was yeah. from Jersey City at the time. Uh, Mark Monsky was the news director at the old Channel 5 Metro Media. He had a gun on his ankle. Ted Kavanaugh, I think, was the general manager. He had a gun on his ankle. And I had just started the Guardian Angels, 1979, and I went for an interview there. And they said, you know what you need? You need what we carry around here. And John Miller carried a gun, too. Uh, And it was a gun-toting crew at the old Metro Media Channel 5 uh, he was a buff to begin with, and then he developed it into a career. He gave up, as you said, a lucrative career in TV news in order to work on these anti-terrorism efforts to keep us all safe and secure. So it's incumbent upon all of us, call City Hall. Let them know, do not fire John Miller or drive him out to the point right. where he ends up resigning. And that leads us to the other young man who developed uh, his bones early on in life, Andrew Cuomo, he was 23. He was the campaign manager for attorney Mario Cuomo, who was in a runoff with Ed Koch to become mayor of the city of New York. 1977. David Garth was the campaign manager for Ed Koch, who had been a dove when it came to the Vietnam War and was opposed to the death penalty because he represented the same area that John Lindsay had represented, the Silk uh, Stocking District. District, yeah. So David Garth says, look, there's like six, seven, eight Democrats. You've got to define yourself as being pro-death penalty. And so Ed Koch says to David Garth, but a mayor can't do anything about the death penalty. Trust me, crime is rising. People want a Democrat who is for the death penalty. So Ed Koch was for the death penalty, defined him as being different than the others, the one most opposed to the death penalty. He always was until he... He ended up passing away with Mario Cuomo. Right. He always was against the Yeah, that was, that was very sincere on his part. I disagreed with it, but he was, he was and, very honest. And remember, it's, he's 23. Andrew Cuomo is his campaign manager. Right. They're sitting with Matty Troy, who used to be the oh, Matty Troy was a great guy. Great guy. <laughs> he went to Brooklyn Prep. <laughs> yeah, I know he did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Matty was like, a great guy. Like you did, like I did. <laughs> so they're all sitting around. They're saying, oh, my God, he's killing us in the polls. And Andrew says to his dad, Look, Dad, I know you're not going to like this, 
But we think Ed Koch is a homosexual. We've got the placards made up, vote for Cuomo, not to homo. And they went up all over the city. And the numbers for Koch plunged because, remember, this is 1960s, 70s. People were not open-minded about that. So David Koch sits down with Ed Koch, and Ed is going, oh, oy vey, oy vey, oy vey. Don't worry. Call him Bess Meyerson, my very dear friend. The first Jewish Miss America, every booby, every Zeta wanted their son or their grandson to, to have her as a girlfriend and potentially marry her. Bess, would you hang out with Ed throughout the campaign and, you know, act like you might get married in Gracie Mansion if he gets elected? She was with him everywhere. The polls soared. Mario Cuomo lost. The strategy fails. And yet a few years later, they're running for governor. Akach is way ahead in the polls. He has the support of Rupert Murdoch, the New York Post. It's a slam dunk. And then he gives that interview to Playboy magazine right. saying that everyone upstate, they're milking cows and the women wear gingham dresses. Right. And Cuomo surges to victory in the Democratic primary and becomes governor. And you know the rest of the history. Now, Actually, I think it's better having Ed Koch as mayor. He, he go nuts as governor. Mayor, he was able to get right involved in there. And- <laughs> but now... Andrew Cuomo, everyone thought was dead. But like Lazarus, he has come back. And you know him, and I know him, and we know his family's tradition. In the most recent poll, he was only four percentage points behind Kathy uh, Hochul, who had to be shocked at those results, because in previous polls, she was way ahead of Swazi and Jumani Williams. What do you think is going on in Andrew Cuomo's mind? What is his plan? What is his intention? Well, he's not waiting. He wants to come back. I was talking to a very high-ranking elected Democrat who is convinced that uh, Andrew is going to run as an independent because if he gets that 33, 34, 5 percent of the vote uh, and it works across the board, he could end up winning in a three-way race. It's going to pro- probably be Lee Zeldin. I know you're supporting Andrew Giuliani, great guy. Whether it's Giuliani or uh, Estorino or Lee Zeldin, uh, they're going to get a solid base. Kathy Hochul is really not that well-known. I'm really disappointed in her, by the way. I knew her in Washington. Uh, she was on the Homeland Security Committee when I was chairman. She was a very moderate, even slightly right-of-center Democrat. She's just gone way over to the left. She's sort of making a bit of a turnaround now with barely form. Having said that, uh, I don't think there's any real strong Kathy Hochul supporters anywhere. There are people who still love Andrew Cuomo, and he has determination. I think he... Sort of like uh, Napoleon. He wants to come back, and he doesn't want to wait. So Usually you wait a few years to be redeemed. The, He's coming back right his away. The island of Elba is the Chris Cuomo Fredo compound in Southampton, <laughs> where he's planning his return. And this being the 50th anniversary of the Godfather movie, it hit uh, the national uh, movie screens on uh, March 24th. That would make it this Thursday, 50 years ago, 1972. And you know the rest of the history on that. But many have said that Michael Corleone, the character played by Al Pacino, reminds them of Andrew Cuomo, how he's dealt in politics. And I'm telling you, having known the Cuomos as friends and then for most of the time as foes, there is no doubt in my mind that he is sitting there saying, guys, gals, it's time we settle all scores. Not against the Republicans, because the Republicans haven't really given him a problem. But his fellow Democrats, when we return... Remember, you're an expert on the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, but I used to be the Reform Party chairman of a third party in New York. That, yeah. 
I know exactly what he can do to run as an independent, and I don't think it's really been spoken about at length, but you are. You couldn't be more hopelessly right. Congressman Peter King, yours truly, Curtis Lee, as we take you the rest of the way to 10 o'clock exclusively here on WABC. 50th anniversary, Godfather. Some have said greatest film of all time. One, two, eh, not three. Uh, but to the Godfather sound, because that's what's happening over in the Ukraine. Uh, let's face it. Uh, Vladimir Putin's acting like I'm Godfather. These were yeah. all of the uh, parts of the old Soviet Union. They're mine. Well, not so fast. And 77 WABC is supporting the humanitarian efforts taking place in Ukraine and are asking our 77 WABC audience to help support the people of the Ukraine in their time of need by going to WABCRadio.com slash donate. That's what WABCRadio.com slash donate and join 77 WABC in supporting the humanitarian efforts taking place in the Ukraine in their time of need. 100% of the proceeds go directly to the ongoing humanitarian efforts in the Ukraine. One more time to join 77 WABC in donating to the humanitarian efforts taking place in the Ukraine. Go to WABCRadio.com slash donate. That's WABCRadio.com slash donate. So it's really great that John Amago, Curtis, John Amago, do this all the time, uh, speaking out now and raising money, humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. And that's what WABC has become all about, community activism, getting involved, speaking the voice of real New Yorkers, and in this case, speaking out for the suffering people of Ukraine. And to his credit, the man who took down Mario Cuomo unexpectedly, People said, who's George Pataki, the former mayor of Peekskill, Assemblyman, state senator? This guy was going on his way to become president or United States Supreme Court justice. George Pataki took down the iconic Mario Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo never forgot that because who was the campaign manager? Andrew Cuomo. But interesting, George Pataki took a mission over yep. to Hungary. George is really emotionally and intellectually involved in this. He's a great guy. But I was on the show uh, at Katzenheim. He came on right after this began. And the anger that was there, I mean, this was real. Uh, George Pataki is really, really outraged by what's happening. And he put his mouth, uh, he, he went right over there. Yeah, and because he had family from Hungary. Yeah, right. And uh, he remembers he talked about, you know, when the tanks Rolled into uh, Budapest. 1956. Right, 1956. He told that story uh, on the campaign trail when he was running for governor. But speaking of the Cuomos, you hit it, you got it, that Andrew Cuomo is testing the waters to run as an independent uh, candidate for governor because of the following. When Tish James realized that she was knocking herself out trying to uh, take on Kathy Hochul, that she was going nowhere because Democrats were saying, why would you want to take on the first woman to be governor of the state of New York who has a real good chance of being the first elected governor of the state of New York? Stay attorney general. You could be there for life. So she bowed out. And when she bowed out, she had the black support, not Jumani Williams, who's running to the far left. He has the white hipster millennial support, yeah. you know, which is a black lives matter Antifa support. And then your friend, Tom Swazi, who's actually been running to the right. Right. But none of them were getting traction. So Tish James drops out. And that means the black vote that was solidly behind her had nowhere to go. 
And so when Andrew Cuomo suggested he might run for governor, they do a poll. And Emerson College indicates that Hochul's only ahead of Andrew Cuomo by four points. And when you start dissecting uh, the ethnic and the racial uh, groups that they sampled, he overwhelmingly won the black vote, which is a solid vote in the primaries. So now you have the reason why he went to the black church in Brooklyn. That's right. And they've always been. And as you know, when Democrats are in trouble, like Bobby Menendez, U.S. senator in New Jersey, was on federal trial. First church he went to in Trenton, all black church, because blacks have embraced the Democrats. They believe in giving them a second chance redemption, particularly in the churches and particularly African-American women. So now here's Andrew Cuomo. He's flexing. I'm only four points behind you. I've only spent a little bit of my campaign war trust to sort of rehabilitate myself. He's got commercials running morning, noon, and night. And he's banking on the fact that people are not going to remember him in terms of sexual harassment or all the elderly who died in the nursing homes. And instead of challenging her in a Democratic primary, which he can't win, he'll run as an independent, as you suggested. And having been the chairman of the Reform Party of the state of New York, that was a third party. When April 4th comes, your candidate, Lee Zeldin, he's already the party designee. My candidate, Andrew Giuliani, has to have 15,000 signatures, and it has to be 10 congressional districts that have at least 100 signatures around the state, as does Rob Astorino, as does Harry Wilson. For the Democrats, the designee for the party is Kathy Hochul, but Tom Suozzi has to have the signatures in order to get into a primary. So they'll knock each other out in a primary because they're going to spend whatever money they raised to try to win the primary. You go nowhere if you don't win the primary. Meantime, there's Andrew Cuomo. He can start April 4th gathering 40,000 signatures throughout the state. It could be from Democrats, Republicans, independents. It doesn't have to be from one party. And a month later, he'll have the 40,000 and more. He runs on the independent line. He doesn't want to win necessarily. He wants to hurt Hochul. This is revenge. This is typical of the Cuomos. If you can't beat him, find out who your enemies were, who took you down. And he believes that Hochul, first and foremost, is the number one traitor to him because he had made her the lieutenant governor out of Erie County, Buffalo. Yeah, I think this is a case where it's not so much he wants to win. He wants her to lose. And uh, with Kathy Hochul, and again, I always got along with her, and I still sort of like her personally, but even though she's, I think, really been uh, you know, disappointing as governor, and this was like crime. But I don't think many people are going to wake up on election morning and say, I can't wait to vote for Kathy Hochul. She does not have that intense support. There will be people who love Andrew Cuomo. There's also people that hate Andrew Cuomo. But he will be really the uh, uh, the drawing point in that, and the Republican can just walk in. Yes. As uh, Cuomo and Hochul uh, kill each other off, and I, whether it's Lee or Andrew or uh, Rob, they can they can walk in. And think of it, Peter King. He will have the last laugh because the Republicans might well have an ex-governor with a supermajority of Democrats in the state Senate led by Cousin Stewart, who is like anti, you know, bail reform uh, in terms of putting back the bail. And Carl Hastie, who's the Speaker of the Assembly, he has a supermajority of Democrats. He doesn't want to change the fact that there's uh, no cash bail at all now. So you could imagine the dynamics there. And then Andrew Cuomo will have gotten his revenge, not only against Hochul, 
but Jacobs, who's the party chairman from out in your neck of the woods, and everyone else was sided with Hochul. I mean, this is the way that Cuomo's saying. Look at Chris Cuomo. He's suing CNN for $125 million. Zucker took care of the Cuomos. He turned CNN into the Cuomo National Network. We now learn that he was giving uh, Andrew Cuomo tips on how to do those daily uh, updates uh, that really propelled and rocketed Andrew Cuomo to be considered as a possible Democratic nominee for the presidency. You know, with the, uh, the laptop and the hard drive and everything every day, people were watching that. That was all <laughs> the Cuomo National Network. And look, doesn't bother, uh, it doesn't bother Fredo, Chris Cuomo. He's suing him for $125 million yeah. because, like Michael Corleone and that compound, they have decided we're going to settle all scores. And that's the way the Cuomos operate. Oh, they play tough. There's no doubt about it. Listen, during time, actually, for the most part, Andrew Cuomo and I had a decent relationship but I saw that whenever you did something that he thought was in any way going to hurt him, he would turn in a second. Uh, he and I did have a few really screaming matches during the riots in Brooklyn where he was said he was proud to stand with the protesters. The night after, they were throwing Molotov cocktails at cops. And I said he wouldn't be so proud to stand with the protesters if he wasn't surrounded by state troopers all the time. Definitely. He calls me on the phone, who the hell are you to say this? And who the hell are you to – so anyway, it was one of those type schoolyard uh, things. But I saw he get so – I mean, here in the middle of all these riots – I was leaving office, and he saw what I said in a tweet, and he was mad enough to call oh, yeah. me at home. My wife was standing listening to me on the phone. She thought I was 18 years old, all the cursing that was coming out. You know? Now, up next, we have to talk about the other guy, the Italian stallion who believes in revenge, who can quote every line of the Godfather. Godfather exactly, yes. With the accent, with the raspy voice and everything else. Yeah. Michael Baricic, your friend. We were with him in Florida campaigning for him when he was running for the presidency of the United States. We've seen him in good times, bad times, and I got to tell you, Peter King, he deserves an apology. I can't. Oh, at least when uh, when he supported me for the Republican primary uh, for mayor, that's what uh, got me the victory. People were coming up. You, you take the support of a Russian stooge, uh, of uh, of a, a man who's putting out Russian disinformation with that bogus Hunter Biden laptop story. Well, he has been vindicated. Have any of his inquisitors or accusers apologized to either him or the New York Post? We'll discuss that up next exclusively here as yours truly, Curtis Lewa and Congressman Peter King substitute today for Bernal McGurk and Sid Rosenberg on WABC. Yours truly, Curtis Lewa, Congressman Peter King substituting for Bernal McGurk, Sid Rosenberg today. And uh, this should be the theme song for our friend, Mayor Rudy Giuliani, greatest mayor in our lifetime. Absolutely. And in the aftermath of 9-11, he kept us all informed when we didn't know where our president was or our vice president. He kept the nation cool, calm, and collected. He led us through the most traumatic time uh, in our lifetime. And then he decided to run for the presidency. And that was after saving the city between 1994 and 2001. So he's running for president. He shoots to number one in the polls. Mm -hmm. He decides, I'm not going to Iowa and pledge to drink ethanol and all that. I'm going to run in Florida. I can't win Florida. Then, obviously, I don't deserve to be president. I remember you were down there at his side. I was there at Orlando and then Vero Beach. Right. Dodger training camp. 
and the New Yorkers were out in force. All the snowbirds who had moved there. And all of Rudy's friends over the years. It was a great reunion. Unfortunately, that ended it, but it, was, well, uh, it really showed the spirit of Rudy. We talk about how politics has strange bedfellows. And correct me if I'm wrong on this. The governor at the time, Charlie Crist, who knows who he is. One minute he's a Democrat, Republican, and he uses that man tan. You know, he gets tan out of the can. Apparently he got hold of the strategy book of Rudy Giuliani. Well, he was pledging behind the scenes to support Rudy. He he was always going to announce the next day his support for Rudy. Right. So one of uh, Rudy's campaign attaches had misplaced the campaign book, which gives the strategy. And I think the Charlie Crist people got it. I don't know if they gave it to Romney or McCain. But it basically gave the outline of what Rudy Giuliani was doing after Crist has said, I'm going to support Rudy, right? What a traitor. But I'm telling you, and at that point... After, and the last minute he backed away and let Rudy out there by himself. But right, but after he uh, lost Florida, that was pretty much right. it. In fact, just a few days later, we had a rally here in New York, which Rudy led, supporting John McCain. Rudy was a good... Uh, again, he didn't, he didn't want to lose, but he handled it like a man. And his campaign, if he had been president rather than Barack Obama, it would be a different world today, a much better world. No doubt. But remember... He uh, found the laptops of Hunter Biden at a fix-it shop down in Wilmington, Delaware. Yep. He and Bernie Kerrick went down there. Uh, they took the laptops. They reported what exactly was on the laptop. The New York Post was the only media outlet at first to publish any of those details. They were demonized. Giuliani was demonized. Bernie Kerrick was demonized. It was all there for everyone to see. At that moment, Hunter Biden did not deny it was his, remember? He's never denied it. But his father did. Right. Joe Biden said this is Russian disinformation. Rudy is just a Putin stooge. Then you had 51 so-called experts, CIA directors, national intelligence directors, Clapper, go right on down the line. 51 of them said it was Russian disinformation without a doubt. And that Rudy was a stooge of Vladimir Putin. And I remember when Rudy um, joined my campaign and gave me his support, which uh, gave me the boost I needed to win the Republican primary for mayor. Rudy was there. It was like platinum in a lot of areas. I remember the one thing he felt most hurt about personally was how he was vilified over the Hunter Biden laptop and how he said, it's all there. All they have to do is take a look at it. It's his laptop. You can make all the connections. He brought it to the FBI, brought it to everyone. And so as we were out on the campaign trail, a lot of the Democrats and independents would say, a pox on you, Curtis, for having a Russian apologist, a Vladimir Putin stooge, supporting you for mayor. Well, as it turns out, the old gray lady just last week, uh, all the news that's fit to print, decides to come clean and acknowledge that was Hunter Biden's laptop. 51 people who demonized and vilified Rudy and the New York Post. And so far, not one of them has reached out to Rudy either publicly or privately to say we were wrong. Many of these were the same people that said that Donald Trump was a Russian agent that Putin and Trump had collaborated in the 2016 campaign, which was a total lie from beginning to end. And people like Brennan and Clapper, they knew it. And now they did the same thing to Rudy. And even worse, you know, those guys are bad enough. But the fact that Twitter and Facebook and social media wouldn't even allow the New York Post to be, you couldn't get them. You couldn't find it. 
They blocked them. It was just terrible, absolutely terrible. And that was right during the heat of the campaign. If even just 2 or 3% of the voters had changed their mind because of that, Trump would have won without any question. And remember, how often candidate Joe Biden, the former vice president, was asked that question, and he said, absolutely Russian disinformation. Rudy is a stooge of Putin. He was knowingly lying. Knowingly lying. Also saying he never discussed uh, his son's business with him. Meanwhile, Hunter's traveling to China with him and everything else. Come on. Any father's going to talk to his son about what he's doing. Uh, for one thing, if you say we didn't discuss government business, whatever, but to say he never discussed business at all, and it doesn't make sense. Why else would you have gotten all those contracts and everything else? You would think even if Joe Biden had nothing to do with him getting the contract, to someone say, hey, Dad, I just got a million-dollar contract for doing nothing with a, you know, some prominent government company. Is there a problem with that? Is that going to be embarrassing to you? No, come on. Either, either Joe Biden didn't discuss business with his son, which means he's not really doing his job, or his son didn't tell his father, which means he's a pretty rotten son. But then you connect the dots, and it's all there for people to see. His brothers have profited enormously since Joe Biden was a senator of the state of Delaware for so many years, and then as vice president, and now as president. And his son, and look, this has happened uh, to a lot of families, you know, where drugs just consume a member of the family. It can happen to anyone, yeah. I'm lucky, but it can happen to anyone. Right. And I have three sons, and I dread the fact that maybe one of them develops a drug problem Mm -hmm. and does things that I couldn't imagine that a son or a daughter would do. But America has this. And we find out that he was living under a bridge in Los Angeles smoking crack. That's how bad it got. And we see his whole personal life, Hunter Biden, is a hot mess. He gets to write a book. He gets to do art. People buy his art. But the basis here is that if you look into the laptop, if you see the emails that we were all exposed to, you can see there was an attempt to make money off of the fact that he was the vice president's son. And maybe the vice president was involved in that also. And nobody wants to investigate it. That's why the Republicans have said if they become the majority in the House, which it looks like uh, the midterm elections is going to turn the the key on that. And let's say McCarthy becomes the speaker. That first investigation is into the laptop with Hunter Biden and the connections between not only Hunter, his father at that time, the vice president and his two uncles. You know, that has to be done. And by the way, on that, I would ask. President Trump, stop attacking the Republicans. Let the Republicans take over the House. Don't make this intra-party fight because if they get the majority, if they get 218, 219 votes, that means that Kevin McCarthy controls the chairmanships of everyone uh, and that they will do the investigating. Otherwise, we're going to be screwing around for the next two years. We've got to make sure we win back the House so that we can control the chairmanships of uh, judiciary, homeland security, get in there. Do, and he's had to set up a special committee to investigate what went on with Hunter Biden if we fight amongst ourselves and the Democrats sneak back in, then we deserve what happens to us. Rudy Giuliani has been vindicated. Bernard McCurt, uh, excuse me, Bernard Carrick, vindicated. The New York Post, vindicated. They need to be apologized too. But up next, it's SOS. All hands on deck, Congressman Peter King. John Miller, who's head of the anti-terrorism NYPD unit that has kept us safe and secure since the attack on 9-11, is under attack himself. He appeared with you and John Katsimatidis last night in the 5 o'clock roundtable. Uh, he didn't say anything because, you know, he's not going to complain. But on Friday, the city council has moved to sack him. 
The mayor in today's Daily News did not back him up. It says what the anti-terrorism unit did to keep us safe and secure was a violation of the law. And today the mayor is sitting down with Muslim leaders at 12 noon. And you know this may be the third uh, link in trying to get rid of John Miller. We're going to talk about that up next. Ladies and gentlemen, you got to keep calling City Hall before that 12 noon meeting and let Mayor Eric Adams and his staff know Keep John Miller as head of the anti-terrorism unit of the NYPD because he has protected all of us in our worst time of need. Congressman Peter King is still fuming that I gave him bupkis ugats. And Thank yet, God Gabby was here to get me the uh, bagel. Which oh, see that? And by the way, that bagel that you had today... The price of it is going to be soaring because a lot of those bagels are made from the wheat that comes from the Ukraine, right. Belarus, Russia, no more. And the fertilizer to grow the wheat from Belarus, Russia, no more. So guess what? That was my last one. There you go. I think my so. last meal. Oh, well, yeah. you have to take a reverse mortgage for that and everything else. But today yeah. it is a call to action. Uh, both Peter King, who has been involved in a lot of rough and tumble politics, as I have been, can read the tea leaves. I saw John uh, Miller at the St. Patrick's Day Parade, as I've seen him every year, and you were kind enough to do our St. Patrick's Day festivities here at WABC Live at 12 noon. Had no idea what the plan of action was to sack him. But on Friday... The city council at a hearing turned on John Miller and said, renounce the tactics that were used by the anti-terrorism unit that you oversaw uh, during the time uh, that you were appointed uh, to lead the effort through different mayoralties. He refused to do that. So they licked their chops and they said, we'll get you. In fact, the uh, city councilman uh, from uh, Bay Ridge, who barely Barely won, right barely survived, uh, decided to make this personal uh, and said, oh, I represent a lot of uh, Arabs uh, in uh, the Bay Ridge section, and we want you out. Then all of a sudden, yesterday, the mayor was asked about this. Now, he could have easily have said, no, you know, I'll I'll meet with John Miller. Let me find out what John Miller has he condemned John Miller publicly. Right. It's in today's Daily News. Yep. Big story in the Daily News, by the way. It doesn't happen by accident. Right. He says what the NYPD... What we did was wrong, is what Eric Adams says. What we did was wrong, saving us from further attacks. We are target number one. There's no doubt about it. They got us in 92. Uh, they tried to complete the task uh, in 9-11. And, you know, they think the third time is the charm. And there's been any number of... Attacks that were stopped by the NYPD since then. Some of them could have been catastrophic. So today at 12 noon, and this didn't just happen uh, by uh, by circumstance of the mayor's schedule. He has a roundtable discussion with Muslim leaders from the five boroughs at 12 noon. Mm-hmm. You know they're going to want John Miller's head on a plate. And the mayor has given no indication that he's going to justify what the anti-terrorism unit of the NYPD did to save us, to save New York City, to save America. And he's going to leave John Miller hanging out there and maybe do nothing to try to stop the effort to have him sacked or maybe just to hope that John Miller resigns and goes back into uh, 
the news world. So we all have to call City Hall. We got we to gotta make sure that the mayor's staff, everybody knows, do not get rid of John Miller. Michael Bloomberg, who seems to have the ear of Eric Adams. Uh, I mean, you would think Bloomberg would be the first one. What are you talking about? Also, Bill Bratton. Right, Bill Bratton. What are you talking about? They saved so many New York lives. John Miller was there. He's an expert. He's a natural resource on, on this issue. And as we said, we haven't spoken with John Miller on this. And I also know that John Miller could walk out tomorrow and make a fortune if he wanted to. But he's giving it all up, really, to work for New York and to save New York. And he is saving New York. When nobody knew who Osama bin Laden was, he introduced us to the mastermind of this terrorist attack. Remember, in that cave in Afghanistan, you saw the goats outside, protected by the Taliban. John Miller for ABC News did an exclusive interview, warned us we didn't pay attention. And then in the aftermath, used all of his talents, not as a reporter any longer, but by assisting his lifelong passion, which was police work, as you mentioned, for Police Commissioner Bratton, for Michael Bloomberg, and to this day, as the head of the anti-terrorism NYPD squad. Uh, when I was in Congress in the Homeland Security Committee, the Intelligence Committee. People came from all over the country and the world to see what the NYPD had established. There. It was a model for the world. And our key witness at so many, so many hearings on what to do with Homeland Security was John Miller. Both parties, Democrat and Republican, they wanted John Miller to testify. They had absolute faith in him. And for Eric Adams not to be standing with him 100 percent, instead, if he gives in to these leaders, well, for the most part, have been phonies. I remember the way, the way they went after me, the stuff they were saying. And listen, uh, as you and I have said, if you want to go after the mafia, you go into Italian neighborhoods. You want to go after the Irish, you go in the Western neighborhoods. You're not going to find the Ku Klux Klan in Harlem, but if you want to find out where there could be Islamist terrorism, you go into the Muslim communities, and that's just the reality of life. People don't want to accept it. It's time for Eric Adams to man up and say, accept it and shut up. And remember, Eric Adams in his narrative talks about how his brother, a police officer, was involved in the aftermath of 9-11, and he was the day after. They know firsthand what it was like. And for him to turn on John Miller suggests to me that maybe he didn't want John Miller there to begin with because he could have easily brought this all to a close by denouncing the city council for trying to get rid of John Miller, who has been a servant to us all. As uh, Peter King has mentioned, didn't have to do this, Uh, was one of the top reporters in all of America and yet Sir Bill Bratton in New York City and in Los Angeles helped the FBI 